All right, and welcome to another episode of Guy Next Door Speaks on film, TV, and music. I'm your host, Ivan from Phoenix, and today is Wednesday, January 11, 2023. I'm sure there's some numerology there we can mess with. Gematria, one, 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 three ones, and then the 23, and, and the two, and the zero, and oh, never mind. Anyway, so yeah, so... Here we are again doing this. It's been a couple of months since my last episode here. Today we're joined by James Cordner. For a little while, James has been talking to me about wanting to do something about that film right there that I'm pointing to, Joker. And that he's pointing to, I don't know if it'd be here or if it'd be there, but ta-da, he's got the comics. He wants to be authentified, authenticated, whatever. So he's got an actual Joker comic. I got the movie. So yeah, so that's what we're here to do, and um, I don't have any major announcements that I really want to delve into. Just to send uh, you know shout out to our brother in arms Joe Murray, who's kind of been aching, hurting under the weather, and kind of going through some stuff here of late. So you know, shout out to him, and uh, hope he gets well soon, and we could get back to doing this great work. And yeah, aside from that. James, welcome to the show, and let's start chatting like the crazy fools that we are about all these conspiracy stuff. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me back on. It's been a while since I've been on your show. We've done a bunch of stuff together in the meantime. And, uh, you know, you being on your show the first time was actually one of the first times anyone invited me onto their show. And ever since then, it's been this like chain reaction, domino effect of events that have just been amazing. So, hats off to you in literal physical you know and figurative <laughs> sense you know tip of the cap to you mr from phoenix uh yeah about joe you know my heart goes out to you brother i'm thinking about you i, I on my rides home from work uh you know want to give you a shout and, and whatever but you got to rest up and like i said dude speak that shit into existence will it into existence and it'll happen you know but uh enough with the enough with the waterworks sorry joe but we're here to talk about the joker right you know and, the other jay um, i got i'm surrounded by jays here we were talking about joe i'm talking with james and we're going to talk about joker jjj hmm. more ooh. synchronistically oh. the kind of jamacha number what's going on here do, 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 do. i should do that wayne's world effect like but yep um the the joker uh so with skipping most of most of the history of the Joker uh, as a character, it is important to, for my thesis, it is important to see it from a holistic standpoint, meaning we kind of have to get a, a, a big picture look to have uh, on, on each iteration of the Joker Today, I really want to focus on Joaquin Phoenix's depiction of the character. But in order to understand, like I'm saying, the bigger picture of it, each and every depiction of the character needs to be considered because of who the Joker has always been within the lore, within the canon of Detective Comics. So I have right here a copy of Alan Moore and... Uh, Brian Bollard, The Killing Joke. This is a very important story because this is one of the first times an honest sw an honest swing of the bat has was taken to give the Joker an actual backstory. 
the reason why the Joker was never given an original backstory, this comic came out in 1988. The Joker's been around since 1940. Batman came out in 1939. The Joker has been a part of Batman's lore nearly since Batman came out. In 48 years, he was never given an honest backstory until The Killing Joke. In The Killing Joke, he's a failed stand-up comic who turns to a life of crime. And he gets brought into the Red Hood gang, dresses up as the Red Hood. They go to, you know, rob the Acme chemical plant. And Batman goes to stop the robbery. And um, Batman has a hand in the guy dressed as the Red Hood, which is the Joker before he's the Joker, uh, pushing that fella into a vat of chemicals. And that is what births the Joker. That's the first time we see a, a, an origin story. And since then, we've seen multiple iterations on screen. Before uh, Jack Nicholson played the Joker on screen, it was uh, Cesar Romero. And he was like the Adam West Joker. He was just the, the clown, right? Then we have Jack Nicholson, uh, Tim Burton's live action adaptation, which does actually have a, a, a very small connection to Joaquin Phoenix's Joker in the form of a an Easter egg that might mean more than just an average Easter egg, a little callback. Hey, look at that picture there. We can get into that. But uh, we see Jack Nicholson, who's a mafia boss, a, a career criminal, you know, the, the clown prince of crime, if you will. Then, you know, then we, then uh, the role gets revived by Heath Ledger, who, by the way, uh, and I take I, I take um, a lot of uh, what's the proper word? I, I don't I don't like saying this, but in in um, in a lot of the zeitgeist out there, Heath Ledger's Joker is known as the anarchist Joker, and he's supposed to be the one that's burning the whole system down. And all that crazy stuff. He's a fake-ass anarchist in that. But anyways, he's the one that's just like a, um, well, I guess more of a psychopath. Uh, and then, then um, what's his name? Jared Leto has a, his iteration of the Joker. And there's another, like an abuser, a dominator. And that way he treats uh, his, his lady there in the movie, Harley Quinn, uh, depicted by, by Margot Robbie. And then we have, uh, up to date now, Joaquin Phoenix's depiction of the Joker, who is a, in my opinion, the, the uh, embodiment of, of mental illness. So in, throughout Joaquin Phoenix's depiction of the Joker, we see many, many um, traits that can be, uh, that can be identified with uh, for uh, on the part of many of the people that exist today who are supposedly suffering from all types of mental illnesses. And I wrap that suffering in quotes because it is a very honest question to ask of whether or not they really are suffering from a mental illness because of some, uh, you know, some circumstance out of their control or if it's something that was given to them, a sort of prescribed belief, if you will, something that was uh, kind of placed in there when no one was looking in a, in, in a roundabout way of saying it. Um, I believe after watching the movie many, many times and doing some, uh, some decent amount of research on the topic that Joaquin Phoenix's Joker 
is is purposefully constructed in a way to give the modern day uh, the modern day person suffering from all different types of psychopathy or mental illnesses um a hero and a an outlet as in a way to make an excuse if you will and they are going to identify with this character and possibly the script and the way the movie plays out is predictive programming for how a person that identifies with that character should act in a situation such as what we see develop in the movie, which is a class riot type of scenario, which has also been developing for about 15 years now in in America. Since the rise of Occupy Wall Street, we've seen a, a, a dramatic increase in the divide between classes of rich people and, uh, you know, middle, lower class type of people. This theme is heavily, heavily put out there in this movie. The movie takes place in 1981, but you wouldn't need to know that just by looking at it. I mean, you would know it that it's obviously set in the past, but given the theme of the movie, you would never even, it, it wouldn't even occur to anybody that it would be taking place nearly 45 years from today. I mean, it came out in 2019. So if it's set in 1981, that's nearly 40 years in the past since the, you know, the release date of the movie itself, you know what I'm saying? But you wouldn't really, that, that really doesn't need to be a part of the plot. Um, so throughout the movie, we see this man who is just broken and there's multiple synchronicities throughout the movie with um maybe synchronicities aren't the isn't the right word but let's start right at the very beginning so he's in a doctor's he's in his doctor's office talking with his doctor and um the first line he says in in the movie the first scene is he's getting I want to pay attention to the to the to the music playing while the beginning credits are rolling and we see him on the street twirling the sign. It's very reminiscent of the movies that were that the the music that was played in the old silent films. And that, that plays a part in this movie as well. And maybe we can get there. Um, but the first line that Joaquin Phoenix character says is, is it just me or is it getting crazier out there? He says something along those lines to his psychotherapist or whatever. He's having trouble with his prescriptions. The thing I want to draw attention to is the time on the clock. Okay. It's set to 1111. And this is the first clock in the whole movie, and it's set to eleven eleven. During that scene, he's in the he's in his, the office with his doctor. She uh, reminds him about the time that he spent in the hospital. 
and it cuts to the scene and this is important too uh it, not only there's two things that happen in that in that padded room again the clock is set to 11 11 so not only in the doctor's office but then in the padded room when it cuts there it's set to 11 11 he's banging his head against the glass okay that's an important thing to remember not only the 11 11 type of matchup but hitting his head against the glass see what we come to find out throughout the movie is um, and maybe I'm rushing through this a little bit, but if if you want to, if you had anything to say about that, I, I can I can yield for a moment and let you let you take it away about that. All right, just a couple of things that that class warfare thing that was also hinted at in the Dark Knight Rises. Yes, with Catwoman and with Bane and all that. That that's part of the. Uh, you know, combustion there is the haves and haves nots and all that. And that interesting, you say 1981, kind of, that this play, movie takes place in because this class warfare in film has been depicted for a long time also because synchronistically, I've gone back and watched a few older films. And strangely enough, class warfare has popped up in some of these films from the 80s and 90s and i'm like huh interesting that it's really nothing new it's just things that have been there but we never paid attention to and one that there was a nice little line that i saw in a paul newman film recently i've been catching up on paul newman i i have things to say about this guy and people like our actors like him but um a film called Twilight, not the vampire film. This is a 1998 film called Twilight with Paul Newman, uh, Gene Hackman, Susan Sarandon. And it has a little bit of that class warfare thing where there's rich people. And then Paul Newman, an ex-cop, detective, private investigator guy, things that they can get away with that he can't get away with. So it's pretty interesting. And again, in this film, you got the Waynes, Thomas Wayne, the rich, the way they live. And then you got, you know, Arthur Fleck, his mother, and people like him, the way they live. So again, yes, that parallel of the haves and half-nots, the class warfare this year, like you said, this past year, at least two or three movies have that theme also. This film called Triangle of Sadness, Class Warfare. We have The Menu, which is also a very good film that just came out this past uh, couple of months. That one, Class Warfare. So again, that theme, like you said, in the last 15 years, it is kind of amped up or being that we're awake or aware we're noticing more of this being put put out there so that's one thing that i wanted to touch on along with uh yeah that the dark knight and you know that that was in there also yeah for sure and, and you know and and not only just to make it about things that are happening in film but they're putting it in films because it's happening in real life you know we had occupy wall street happening back it started back in like 2008 and this is you know after the housing crisis and all the banker bailouts and all the all the bailouts but the the but the you know again your your government didn't didn't come and help you did they no they helped the they helped their special interests they helped their their banks and everything like that and they left you by the wayside and people stood up and said Ugh. and ever since then we've seen this whole uh and and maybe it's because I'm I'm a younger fella but it certainly seemed that way that it seemed like uh, a lot of adults and and around me at the time, um, you know, this whole tax the rich thing started becoming more and more prevalent 
you know, and, 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 you know, in society to the point where we, you know, see your, your fake politicians out there wearing dresses. That's, you know, what's her name? Um, what, uh, AOC wearing the dress that says tax the rich on it to some, some thing or whatever. It, it's, it's just an example as how it's in, re- in real life, this thing is going on. Meanwhile, they're making movies about um, this situation being dragged into a very extreme uh, version of itself. This is where predictive programming comes in. It's where they will plant the idea of how you should react in certain scenarios. They'll see it in the movies, and that'll program you into thinking that this is the reaction that you need to take when it happens in real life. Or it offers it up as an option. Yes. Because I've always had, I've, I've been getting a thing about predictive programming the, that I think that's a neutral thing also, that that could have a positive or a negative. So when we say the term predictive programming, it's predictive as far as what they're trying to direct. This is what you should do. Or is it predictive as in be careful because what you're doing now can lead to this. See, so it's like what what's actually predicting is like, look, this yeah. is what to avoid, or this is where we want to get you, and we're gonna fool you into getting it there. That's all. That's all based on the level of consciousness of the person that is watching whatever is going on. You see, like that. So people that are on the low on on the lower part of the scale of consciousness that have that are vib- like lower vibratory consciousness, they're not gonna see it the way that you're describing it. They're gonna they're they're going to see it as as uh, sorry to take the spotlight, but they they will take it the way that I'm describing it. They'll say, "Oh, that's what you do," because it's uh, that's just what you do, and they'll, it'll it'll work mm-hmm. its way into the person's subconscious and mess with mess around in there. And when it's happening in real life in front of them, it's it, that's that's what oh this is this is how I'm trained to react to this situation. Now, people that are actually conscious of these things will be able to discern for themselves what's going on around them because that's consciousness in a nutshell is being able to assess the situation of what's going mm-hmm. on around you and act right in the face of the, in the face of that. And to be able to pull yourself away from that, just get up and leave if you need to, or whatever you got to do, but you're doing the right thing, not just following the herd, like some mm-hmm. sheep, you know, like a sheep mentality type of thing, crowd, mentality, yeah. which let know. me grab that spotlight back yeah. there. MF? No. (laughs) Give me that spotlight back. No, it's uh, like, yeah, I agree with you. Yes. It's like that um, being taught what to think as opposed to how to think. So that's it right there. The predictive programming, they're telling you what to think, whereas predictive programming can be, you know, how to think. You know, it's like, ah, I see the consequences of this, this leading to that. Let me avoid that. But you're right. It is addressed to, obviously, they put it out there for the, you know, simpletons to just follow along. And that's why they hate critical thinkers. That's why they got to label us extremists or, you know, uh, anarchists or, you know, anything negative to be like, no, these guys see what we're actually doing. How can we discredit what they're saying? You know, that kind of shit. So So you may have the spotlight again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bam. Hey, look at that effect. Back uh, back to the Joker. So to mm-hmm. kind of to kind of rewind for a minute. So in the very first opening scene of the movie, he gets that sign stolen from him. He chases down those punk kids that steal the sign. And he gets beat up. We see him laying in the gutter. 
completely submissive, unable to stand up for himself and at least not even able to throw a punch. This is a part of his mentality. This is what, this is what has, this is his response to the trauma. This is where we first get a glimpse of how this care, how this character is going to respond in a situation where your fight, flight, or freeze response is initiated. Fight, obviously raise, you know, defend yourself, fight, flight, run away or freeze, which is disassociation. And that's what he does. That is his response to trauma. Traumatic events have happened to him in the past. This is how he responds to it. He curls up in a little ball in the fetal position on the ground and takes the beating. Now, the sign's broken, whatever, you know, and and then um, he's he's back at the shop where he works. He's putting on his makeup, doing all this stuff, whatever. Uh, I'm, I might be mixing up a little bit, but... Anyways, when he's, he's back at work, he's confronted by a coworker of his, Randall. And Randall goes, I heard about what happened to you. Here's a gun and not so many words, you know, and, or maybe more words than that. Anyways, <laughs> Arthur turns to Randall and says, I'm not supposed to have one of these. So that leads me to believe that it's not a real secret. Because Randall says, oh, no, just don't tell anybody. This kind of line of dialogue takes place, which leads me to believe that it's not really a secret that this character, Arthur, has been open and honest about his past with his current coworkers. Or maybe he's always worked with these guys and what happened to him happened recently. So they know that he went to the hospital, He that he was locked up for a minute and he had a, an incident, whatever that incident was. I don't think we ever really get into that in the movie. It never tells you what happened to him before the movie started. That that you know that 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 memory in the doctor's office that he's having about being in the padded room. We don't learn what got him there. Maybe maybe I missed that part, but I don't think we ever le learn what gets him there. But we learn about what happens after the fact. He gets the gun. He's got that all all that stuff or, or whatever, and we see. Um, we see him, how does it, how does it develop from there? His boss calls him in to the office and confront and his boss confronts him about the sign. Yep. And we see for the first time, we see him standing there with this stupid grin on his face, right? Just taking a verbal lashing from his boss. He tries to defend himself a little bit by stating his case, but he really doesn't do a very good job. This is another part where we see disassociation and, and we, we, um, <clears throat> we get the help of cinematography there with the music kind of drowning out the audio of, of the voices in the room. So this is how cinematography can play into uh, kind of giving you an emotional response, if you will, or playing with it or leading you to, to uh, figure out what is really supposed to be going on by way of like an auditory, like messing with you like auditorily, where it's like you're, you are experiencing as the viewer, the same thing as what Arthur is experiencing as the man in the room. He's literally just standing there and taking it, drowning it out. For all, you know, for all we know, he could be just listening to that music in his head. Who knows? And it's not really music. It's more like a droning 
kind of uh, siren type of sound, you know, uh, and maybe we can, maybe we can play a clip of that, but. No, don't say it. This will be quick. Look, I like you, Arthur. You know, a lot of the guys, they think you're a freak, but I like you. I don't even know why I like you. But I got another complaint. It's starting to piss me off. Kenny's music. Uh, the guy said you disappeared. Never even returned his sign. Because I got jumped. Didn't you hear? For a sign. It's bullshit. It doesn't even make sense. Just give him a sign back. He's going out of business, for God's sake, Arthur. Why would I keep his sign? How the fuck do I know? Why does anybody do anything? If you don't return the sign, I gotta take it out of your paycheck. Are we clear? Listen, I'm trying to help you, okay? And I'll tell you something else. The other guys, they don't feel comfortable around you, Arthur, because people think you're weird, okay? And I can't have that around me. I wanted everyone to work out. What do we see that happens next? He leaves the shop and we see him get to that set of stairs. Okay. And every single scene until the final time after all the, after everything that he's done, we see him going only going up the stairs. And every time he gets to the stairs, he's like, ugh, like he's in a very bad place. So he gets home, he checks the mailbox, there's nothing there. And we find out. Once he gets upstairs, we find out that he lives with his mother. Now, I don't know about you, but when I saw that scene for the first time, another thought popped into my head. Where's his father? He's he's nowhere. He's not there. You very quickly find out that it's just him and his mom. It doesn't leave much to the imagination other than who's his father, what happened, the obvious questions. But you don't go, oh, well, his dad's coming home from work. You you figure it out really quick that this character comes home and you you hear about Thomas Wayne for the first time. And uh, then you see what their nightly ritual is. And it's a ritual. They watch the Murray Franklin show played by Robert De Niro. And here's where things get a little dicey. He is watching this show and I believe he's listening to his mother and she's babbling on about Thomas Wayne or whatever the hell she's cackling about. And he drowns her out too by staring at the screen. Okay. We already know about television, putting people into a hypnotic trance, you know, with alpha wave, alpha state, the alpha state. And, uh, but this is a little different. What's going on here is he's actually found a proxy parent, and I know you you love you love talking talking about proxyism. Thank you for that presentation, by the way. That was great. But this is his proxy father. He has found that in Murray Franklin. Now, what struck me as odd was when I first watched the film when he when he's having that 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 experience of being in the audience of the Murray Franklin show. This is another trick that cinematography does is you can't tell right away whether or not he's actually having like a, say that scene could have been a flashback. He could be, he could be reliving a memory of himself being in that audience, but you, again, you, and then as the scene progresses, 
you get more and more suspicious of whether or not this is actually, and I know it's a film, but it's whether or not it's actually something that takes place in his reality. Okay. The reality of the film is what I mean. So you gain suspicion of that. And what happens is you find out that this character is very defensive of his mother. The crowd snickers at him after he admits to being, you know, that he lives at home with his mom. He goes, I take very good care of my mother. You can see that he's defensive of this. And then Murray calls him down and compliments him by way of saying, you know, I always wish I had a son like you. Great-looking audience tonight. Wow, thank you, thank you. Thank you. So, everybody's heard about the super rats that are in Gotham now, right? Well, today, the mayor said he has a solution. You ready for this? Super cats. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I mean, these rats I love you, are... <laughs> I love you, too. <laughs> hey, Bobby, will you put the lights on? Who was that? Was that you? You want to stand up, please? Stand, stand up for me. Go ahead. What's your name? Hi, Murray. Arthur? Arthur. My name's Arthur. Oh, okay. Well, there's something special about you, Arthur, I could tell. Where are you from? I live right here in the city with my mother. <laughs> Okay, hold on, hold on. There's nothing funny about that. I lived with my mother before I made it, just me and her. I'm that kid whose father went out for a pack of cigarettes and he never came back. I know what that's like, Murray. I've been the man in the house for as long as I can remember. I take good care of my mother. All that sacrifice, she must love you very much. She does. She always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She says I was put here to spread joy and laughter. Wow. I like that. I like that a lot. Come on down. Come on. For that, you got to come down. Okay, we got a big show tonight. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. That was great, Arthur. Thank you. I mean, I, I loved hearing what you had to say. It made my day. Thanks, Murray. You see all this, the lights, the show, the audience, all that stuff? I'd give it all up in a heartbeat to have a kid like you. So this is where you know that he's yearning for a father figure and he has found that in Murray Franklin. 
And this is where he draws inspiration to be a stand-up comic. Because as we know, in this style of, of Robert De Niro's character, in this style of late-night uh, late show uh, hosting, much we know that, that in real life, the late-night hosts in real life, Johnny Carson all the way up to now with these fucking idiots like Jimmy Fallon, they all kind of start out as stand-up comics. David Letterman, uh, Jay Leno, um, Craig Ferguson, Stephen Colbert, they all have a, a, a career in comedy, and then they get invited. So obviously, Arthur Fleck's desire to be a stand-up comic comes from him having a desire to relate to his proxy father parent that he has found in Murray Franklin. So this is where his motivation lies in that endeavor. And from there, the movie just starts slowly falling apart. Okay. This is where something else needs to be mentioned. Arthur Flex makeup. Okay. Because from there we see a couple of things happen. And the thing that happens that that's, um, well, one of the things that happens actually that I left out so far, and I apologize for that, but in the elevator ride up, he sees, um, uh, I think her name in the movie is Sophie, but yeah. he sees the neighbor with her daughter and they have an interaction where he, Arthur's character is not used to having interactions with women who aren't his mother. There is an Oedipus, Oedipus Rex type syndrome going complex, Oedipus complex kind of going on between his himself and his mother, uh, where his mother, where it's kind of subconsciously happening, where his mother is so dependent on him, it's not like he's having sexual fantasies about his mother or wants to be with his mother in that way, but it's like this un, kind of unorthodox relate, like unorthodox relationship between you know mother and son. We see him bathing her. That's not normal. That, that, that is just not, that's not normal. But he's bathing her and she's fully nude, you know, and we don't see the nudity, thank God. But I mean, it's just not normal. Anyways, he has this small interaction with the neighbor down the hall. She makes a joke. He plays into the joke, whatever. Uh, time goes on. Anyways, we see his makeup. I want to point out his makeup. Because well, let me that that joke, though it's important because go ahead. Tell as me. she's walking away, you know, she calls him, "Hey," and you know, or in the elevator, yeah, she right. goes like this, that suicidal thing. Okay, and that's it. You know, and why then as they're walking as, as they're walking down the 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 hall, he calls her back, "Hey," and then he does it, but more exaggerated. He kind of, you know, and she's kind of like, "Okay," and then keeps walking. She does that because her daughter is yapping on about something. Right. So the joke is, is that her daughter yapping on about something or, or whatever makes her want to blow her brains out. Yes. So this is another, see, as a parent, you have to be attentive to your children. And sometimes that means even pushing your patients to the fucking absolute limit, you know, but that kind of like, you know, that kind of response it's like, oh, you can tell that this mom is also single because that type of response typically comes from people who are left alone dealing with their child all the time or are having a rough time and they don't know how to handle themselves in a parent-child relationship 
to the to the greatest extent it's not a very healthy reaction but it does happen a lot but that, that's some the the kids yapping on about something I, I forget what it is something silly it's something about a, uh, the child doesn't understand what the, the mother said something i forget but anyways i wanted to draw attention to uh arthur flex face paint okay because it's it is it's important to understand this is that um the classic like clown look painting your face like that throughout history uh has always been pretty similar all the edges of the paint so you'd have like the white face and the red smile the red around the mouth and whatever the what have you's on you know all the different styles but throughout history up until uh, i think the 70s or or whatever well I, I forget exactly when ted bundy not ted bundy excuse me uh john wayne gacy uh was putting on his clown makeup and doing what he was doing but in a very similar situation um john wayne gacy actually was one of the first times in uh in you know in like public in in the in public where a clown would have pointed edges Okay, before that, it was always rounded edges. A pointed, pointed edges make it look more nefarious, makes it look more evil. Right. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's just a weird, uh, you know, it's just a weird feeling you get. It's just one of those things, I guess. So this is what makes me, and you see his other clown buddies in the room, and they have, a couple of them are doing their makeup, and they don't have the pointed edges. Right? So they're doing the more traditional look. He's the only one with the pointed edges. So it automatically makes me think of John Wayne Gacy. And another thing that really ties a nice little nice little bow on that is that the club that he goes to to perform his stand-up comedy is called Pogos. That was the name that John Wayne Gacy took for a clown name. So John Wayne Gacy was known Pogo the Clown. And that's the name of the club that Arthur Fleck performs his stand-up comedy at. So there's a bunch of little tidbits in there about psychopathy john wayne gacy if i'm not mistaken wasn't he into kids yep john wayne gacy um in case anyone hasn't heard of them american serial serial killer and sex offender who raped tortured and murdered at least 33 young men and boys 33 what an interesting uh what an interesting number <laughs> Uh, Gary Gacy regularly performed at children's hospitals and charitable events as Pogo the Clown or Patches the Clown. Well, hold on now. There's a scene here where he performs at a hospital, children, and the gun falls out. That, that is very important. And then also, now you make me, and if you don't know, you may have to watch a Robin Williams movie, Patch Adams. Patch Adams, yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Patch Adams. So that's a very important, uh, that's a very important part about this. So I don't know how much Freemasonry symbolism is really in this movie. I've noticed a couple of checkered, uh, checkered floors. Um, but the most prominent thing that stood out to me was he performs at a children's hospital or at least at a children, the children's wing at a hospital. It's not, but I, I, um, I think that it's a children's hospital. Okay. Uh, it makes my, it, it makes my argument more sound to have it be a children's hospital. So let's just pretend for the sake of argument that it is a children's hospital. That would make me think of the Shriners. Shriners is a very famous organization that 
organizes children's hospitals. Shriners is also a part of Freemasonry. So you have Freemasonry and it's like layers of an onion. So you start out as a Freemason, you get to a certain point, you get tapped and brought into the Shriners. You do a certain amount of stuff with the Shriners, eventually you get tapped and you got bring in you get brought into an organization within the organization, layers and layers, but the third one in line, you go Freemasons, Shriners and then the jesters. So the jesters are, they, they just go around and they do all sorts of um, silliness and they push the envelope to see what they can get away with. And if you, if you, you know, know anything about Freemasonry and all this stuff, well, there's a lot of law enforcement officers, a lot of uh, um, judges and, you know, people in the system that are a part of these, uh, organizations like Freemasonry. So that by the, that means that they're Shriners and Jesters as well. So that's what makes me, in Jesters, of course, the Joker is a Jester. You know, he's a clown. He dresses up as a clown. So he's in a child's hospital dressed up as a clown. And that's what John Wayne Gacy used to do. So this is another tip of the hat to John Wayne Gacy. John Wayne Gacy, if I remember correctly, had a terrible relationship with his father. John Wayne Gacy was a closeted homosexual. Terrible relationship with his father. And I even think that John Wayne Gacy was even wrapped up in the whole Boys Town fiasco from uh, the Franklin cover-up. Maybe that was a different guy, but I'm pretty sure it was John Wayne Gacy that was wrapped up in in the the Franklin cover-up, the Franklin scandal from Boys Town. Um, Boys Town, Idaho? Was it Idaho? Excuse me. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, But uh, anyways... So he drops the gun on the floor, and what do we see? He goes, "Oh, he freaks out." Cut scene. He's in a to- he's in a telephone booth, right? This is where it's important because he gets fired from his job, hangs up the phone, smashes his head against the glass until it breaks, just like the very first scene. Well, not the very first scene, but back in the doctor's office when he's remembering the events of being in that padded room, this is his way of self-harm. It's a repeat, it's it's repeating. This is what makes me think that it's this is his way of of doing a a doing some kind of self-harm where he smacks his head. Maybe it doesn't mean on glass, but he's smacking his head nonetheless on something. Um, anyways, this is about, (laughs) this is where things get even a little bit more, more funny. Uh, he gets into the, the subway and the, the, the woman is getting harassed, right? And he ends up killing those three guys. So, and that takes place about 33 minutes into the movie. So that's another 33 (laughs) in there. It's just an interesting observation. So anyways, um, he kills those guys, and but who are these guys? They these are, guys are three like Wall Street guys. Yes. So allegedly killed by a clown. So we start seeing the media and the city going, "Oh, the rich, these wonderful guys, you know, because they're white, you know, rich Wall Street guys killed by some of the rats, the you know the the sleaziness of the city." So starting again, that divide stuff because people die every day and nobody gives two shits. But these Wall Street guys get killed, and all of a sudden, what's the city coming to? Yep. Exactly. 
So he kills these guys and he he runs home. All right, but not only but when he gets there, this is this is important. When he gets there, he marches his he marches his way up to that his neighbor's door, knocks on the door, she comes to the door and he just takes her. And she's like, "Oh, like okay, this is happening." And then from there, we see certain developments going on. He's paying attention to the news. He's like, he's, he's doing all sorts of nutty things, you know? Um, oh, so I, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to, I, I also wanted to, you know, in the background of all of this going on, I want to point out that, you know, we see very, I'm pretty sure it happens a lot earlier than where I'm already at in my in my breakdown here, but um, way earlier in the movie from where I from where I was just at, and maybe you can in, include the clip here. Uh, but he's in his kitchen or at a at a table. He's writing in his journal, so he's keeping this journal. It's supposed to be for therapy, but he's also using it to write down his stand up comedy routine. And he's sitting there smoking a cigarette, and the uh, the the first line of the joke is um, something along the lines of, "Do you want to know the 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 worst part of having a mental illness?" And then he takes a drag of his cigarette and he picks the pen back up and he writes, everyone expects you to pretend that you don't. It's something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Maybe I got it right. Maybe I got it no, wrong. Yeah, but, it's like that. But the important part is, is that he puts the pen down. He was writing with his right hand. He puts the pen down and he picks it up with his left and he continues writing with his left hand. This is a very important distinction that people need to make when they're watching this movie because every time he does something with his left hand, Arthur is the right hand. Joker is the left hand. Okay? This is where, where the first signs of him having what's called disassociative identity disorder come in. Where it's split personality. There's, there's two people living within him. All right, Arthur and Joker. And we are made to believe that jo that Arthur is the dominant personality. Not in the sense of domination and submission, but in the sense of the one that's more forward. That's what the I The one that's in control. Well, the one that the right? one that's more forward. The one that expresses itself most often. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's another important theme to remember going throughout the movie because constantly we see him 
shifting from right hand to left hand with certain objects, including that gun that he was given. When he's in the apartment and he shoots the gun by accident, it's in his left hand. Hey, what's your name? Arthur. Hey, Arthur. You're a really good dancer. No, no. No, it's not. Him. You can see that the happiest men are not I'm, I'm watching an old war movie. Um. Okay, and he's going back and forth, and then he goes, bang. Then he blames it on the movie that he's watching. Anyways, so that's something I just wanted to squeeze in there real quick. So I see what you did there, like squeeze the trigger. I got to be a joker somehow. And I did that with my left hand too. No, I'm just kidding. You son of a bitch. Anyways, so he marches up to the door. Then, well, wait. Let's focus again with that left hand because this is even how illogical it kind of can be, this DID. He shoots two guys in the train. The third one runs out of the train, tries to run out, and they're playing like a hide-and-seek kind of thing, waiting to the doors to close. Uh And when the doors close, start closing, and the guy runs out, you would think since... Arthur slash Joker is facing to his left that you want to hide and shoot with your right hand out the door. However, to really emphasize your point of left hand, he's going across this way, which is kind of, you know, to still shoot with the left hand. Again, the door's right here. It's it's easier to shoot this way, but he kind of goes like this to shoot with the left hand at that guy. And right. I was like, wait, did I see that right? Let me see. I rewinded and he f- runs after or walks after the guy who's running away to shoot him. And sure enough, you see the whole time it's tracking, he's shooting with his left hand. And I was like, wow, son of a bitch, he is using the left hand to kill this guy. I'm glad that you brought it back to that scene because there's a lot that happens in that scene that can't be left out. So of course we, you know, this, this is where his supposed condition gets him into trouble. Like he's got this, you know, he, he laughs in like really awkward situations and that's what draws the attention of these guys in the first place. Um, hold on. And then, uh, what happened? Oh no. Oh, here we go. Anyways, um, 
he's in the he's in the train car he's like you know watching this scene unfold in front of him and then he starts laughing uncontrollably that's what gets the attention of these guys and they they start they they start beating him up so it makes you go oh this guy's just having the 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 you know the worst week of his life you know what i mean and uh he finds himself in the same position as the opening scene he's on the floor in the fetal position getting kicked mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. just like before but now he has a means to defend himself okay and he, that's what he does and this reminds me this scene reminds me it's very reminiscent of that incident that happened back in the 19 i think 1980s in New York City in the subways Bernard gets with, with what was it Bernard gets was the guy's name? I think I can't tell you the guy's name, but I know the story is is that he was getting assaulted on the subway and he fucking whipped out his piece and he blasted that guy and he yeah. it was a huge controversy of whether or not he should have been able to do that and I say that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that it's in this movie it's portrayed that this guy is you know not mentally sound. And that's what that's what he re- resorts to doing, um, but he's defending himself nonetheless, which everybody has the God given right to do. Look, uh, the simplicity of do no harm, take no shit. Those guys joke, joke, ha ha ha. Okay, but then when they start beating the guy up, it's like, yo, what the hell? Oh. Huh? Hey, hold him steady. Hold him steady. it's a vicious beating yeah not a poke in the chest it's not a it's not a little shoving match which you know i am who i am i have my own opinions on the matter but it's nothing like that so it's a vicious beating that this character is taking um and uh so there's another part I, I before I, I go any further there's another part about uh dissociative identity disorder that i didn't want to leave out before we go any further it's largely a result of repeated or long-term childhood trauma. All right. So it's most frequently child abuse or neglect. And, um, and that it's, com- it's combined with an insecure disorganized attachment and it's DID cannot form after ages six to nine on average, uh, because individuals older than that, uh, have, they have an integrated self-identity and history. So they're able to, you know, so they, they're able to know who they are. They're, they're able to have a sense of values uh, if they're, you know, instilled in them. And they're able to have a better formed memory, solid memories that they can kind of anchor themselves to, to uh, anchor themselves to those memories and subsequently reality. So that's a very important part about that, that mental disorder to keep in mind. Um, so he kills those guys on the subway and he runs home, does all that stuff, takes the woman, you know, whatever this is, 
th- this is um this is where we really start seeing him unravel okay and then next next couple of scenes is him with her they're walking through the streets and uh he sees that that uh newspaper of him of the ki- the cl- the killer clown you know and he's like making the face and he's like all proud of himself this is where we start seeing narcissism he's getting attention right mm-hmm. and he's super proud of himself for it so um from there we really uh we really see a downturn of events so where we're at is he eventually has to go back to where he works because he gets fired okay and then in the same day that he gets fired he kills those guys and then he has to go he has to go back to where he works right and um he's cleaning out all of his stuff his coworkers are giving him a little bit of shit and uh he turns and he basically just says oh why don't you they've given him shit because he gets caught with the gun at the children's hospital. Okay. And then they're giving him shit because of that. And he's like, Oh, well, why don't you ask Randall? He's the one that gave it to me. And the dude Randall gets all, you know, you know, all huffy puffy with him. And, uh, Arthur starts walking away and then he forgot to punch out. Oh yeah. I forgot to punch out. So he turns (laughs) around and he makes a joke. He goes, Oh, I forgot to punch out. So he starts wildly beating the old style punch clock with the, what you you know, put the card in there and it would punch the card and then you'd put it back in your slot, that whole thing. The clock is at 1111. So this three for three so far, the third clock you actually see in the film is at 1111. So it's this, it's just this, this little like stamp. I don't know what you would call it. It's just a, a marker identifier. It's a right. little like, yeah. <laughs> right. And 1111 has wildly, widely always been associated with like this magical number, this very synchronistic number. You know, in my generation, kids would see 1111 on the clock and they go, oh, make a wish. You know, it, it's always been associated with like magic. So I don't know how deep that really, that rabbit hole really goes. I'm not prepared to really go there today. But uh, there's there's something going on with that number eleven eleven for sure, you know it's three for three so far in the movie. So well, three for three elevens. That's thirty three. That's oh, your Freemason again. <laughs> oh wow, there it is. And so you know, and uh, and so he's like doing all that, and what happens next? He. We eventually got to get back to the mom because somewhere in there, the conversation about who his father is and Thomas Wayne, all that gets starts. Yeah. Yeah. So um, where are we? He leaves the, he leaves his work, has all the stuff. He punches the clock. Um, then what does he do? I think he does his stand up routine. That's right. Yep. I'm pretty sure that at, at some point he does his, after that, he does his stand up routine. He invites that girl to his stand up routine. I think that that's how their little yes. relationship kicks off, actually. And she shows up and he's doing great on stage. Okay. And then, then they are shown walking around. And then it, it shows this development like he's having a relationship with this woman. And then um, 
what happens next. Help me out here. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's with his mom. They're watching the show, and that's when De Niro's character is like, check this Joker out, making fun of him. So he's all like, daddy's going to be happy, happy that I'm a comedian. And then he freaking like, what? Daddy's making fun of me. You know, he doesn't like my humor. And somewhere between that and then the mother getting, you know, the conversation about who's your father, all this stuff leads to her when he comes home at one point there's doctor's uh, emergency remember that she gets taken to the hospital and then at the hospital we see him sitting there with her which later on shows something else but that you know somewhere in there all this is happening okay so how it breaks down is uh, he he gets home and she's passed out watching murray mm-hmm. right and in her in, in her haze she mentions that Thomas Wayne finally sent a letter or no, that she has a letter to send to Thomas Wayne. Excuse me. Yeah. He needs to drop it off in the mailbox to get it to Thomas Wayne. So he's like getting a little curious. What's the big deal with this Thomas Wayne fella? What's what, you know, like I know she used to work for him as a maid, you know, but what, what's up? Like, why does she want to get in touch with him so badly? Why does she think that he's going to come and save the day? And he opens the letter and we see that uh, according to her, according to Penny, that Thomas Wayne is Arthur's father. She refers to Arthur as his son in the letter. And this sends him into a tailspin. He tries to go to confront his mother. And uh, she she says, I'm not going to talk to you if you're angry. And he goes, okay. And he quickly calms himself down. And then he like leaves, right? Um, excuse me. And so he finds out about this, and it's a, it's a very it's a very you know tense situation. And then somewhere in there is daytime, and he goes and to see follows shows up at the Wayne Manor and sees young Bruce. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And so he does that. He confront he he goes there and he sees he sees uh young Bruce, gets confronted by Alfred, then he leaves, goes after home. making a smiley face on Bruce, you know, puts right. his hands to the gate and like he's the conversation suggests like a brotherly thing, like, oh, you know, he doesn't say specific, but he kind of hints like, you know, we're brothers, we're of the same thing. So again, that's kind of ties with Joker always saying that Batman made him and how they're connected one and together. So right there also we're we're brothers in a way, in his mind. Yeah, he reaches through the gate and does that to him, like, hey, put a smile on. Because yeah. he was always told to be happy. In fact, that's his his mother's nickname for him. Yes, happy. Is to be happy. So, uh, and then Alfred comes out and confronts him and says, you got to leave before you make a fool of yourself, right? And so he does. He leaves. He goes home. And uh, he shows up to an ambulance taking his mother, the paramedics taking his mother out. There we go. Jumps in the ambulance and they say, when was the last time you saw his mother? And he says, I don't know. So he is so, this situation has got him so stressed out. He doesn't have, he doesn't even have a grasp on how much time has passed since the last time he saw his mother. So it's just another calling card toward 
showing the audience that this dude, Arthur, doesn't really have a tenuous grasp on reality and the way that the, the events play out. Now, one might say that this is a typical response with somebody that's going through such a stressful situation. I myself have been through a stressful situation much similar to that. In fact, very similar to that. And I can tell you for sure that when you're being asked questions, it is hard to give a steady answer. But if you just stop and breathe for a minute, you, you're able to. Now, this person, Arthur, obviously the character wasn't taught that kind of technique. Uh, so it just goes to show that he's not really prepared to deal with stressful situations. So this just plays into another fact where it's like, yeah, when you're in a stressful situation, that is what triggers the fight, flight, freeze response. He's freezing again. So this is his way to deal with stress. He disassociates. He tunes everything out. We see it time and time again throughout the movie. And we'll get to the reason why. I hope, <laughs> but we, he goes to the hospital. He's confronted by the, uh, the police officers and he quickly, he, he is able to put two and two together. And he realizes because of the police officer's own admission that they were questioning his mother and they start questioning him. And we start as the audience realizing that the police are on to the fact that somebody, uh, somebody dressed as a clown, right? Not just with a clown mask, but actually dressed as a clown, you know, did these things to the people, to those three men on the subway that they're on, that they have a lead that they, that they found out that there was a clown that got caught at the children's hospital with a gun, a gun that could, we don't know as the audience really, because they don't make this assertion to the audience in the movie, but one can only assume that they're able to say, Oh, well, you know, maybe it was the same gun, something in there, right? Okay, it's not easy. It's not hard to kind of put two and two together on that. Clown gets caught in a hospital with a gun the same day that these three men get shot by a clown in the subway. Okay, who was that clown? Who did he work for? They can ask the hospital, where'd they hire the clown from? They go to the guy's boss and the boss goes, okay, this is where he lives or whatever. They go to try to track him down. And this is the way the series of events kind of unfolds in the background. They read between the lines a little bit as the viewer to figure out exactly like where these guys come from, who these cops are, how they traced them down, tracked them down or whatever. And now they're all at the hospital together. And it's kind of a comedic event in the movie where he walks into the glass. <laughs> I got a kick out of that. Your boss also gave us one of your cards. This condition of yours, you're laughing. Is it real? Some sort of clown thing. A clown thing? Yeah. I mean, it's part of your act. What do you think? It's exit only. And it just goes to show that, like, maybe this guy is just, like, kind of a goofy guy. And he got caught up with some shit or whatever, you know? And it's like... Um, <laughs> he makes a remark at the cops where it's just a very snide remark. He goes, I, I forget exactly what he says, but I remember the attitude of, of what, what he says to the cops. And it was kind of funny. Um, but then we, 
we see him in the hospital room, right, with with his girlfriend or whatever, and they're watching Murray. His mother's like unconscious. She's like comatose, right? She's had a stroke and she's just in the hospital bed. But hey, Murray Franklin's on. Time to do our daily ritual and watch the comedy show. So he puts on the comedy show and uh well his girlfriend's not there it's him and his mother alone comedy show comes on and that's when we see that um murray franklin got a videotape of arthur at the comedy club and he starts making fun of him okay so now this is when it starts making a little bit more uh maybe not sense but when we start actually being able to make sense of this character's motivation going forward so we've found out that he could very well be um could very well be Thomas Wayne's son. Okay. And then on top of all of that, he is trying to get like he's trying to get into contact with Thomas Wayne, gets rejected at the gate. All this other stuff plays out. And this is the part about rejection from the male, rejection from the father figure. And Murray Franklin's rejecting him on that on live TV. You know, I'd, I'd label Murray on national television doing that is more betrayal. He feels betrayed by his father figure. You mm-hmm. know, somebody who should have his back. Now, not only does he have abandonment issues, now he has betrayal. Somebody, quote unquote, kind of trusted and looked up to like, oh, I'm doing you know good in your eyes. And then to feel betrayed by him. That's another layer, I guess. Yeah, because when he first appeared, when Arthur first realizes that he's being featured on Murray's show, he's like, oh, I'm going to get a compliment, just like in my fantasy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a compliment. And it doesn't pan out that way. He gets, like, he gets, you know, made fun of. And he feels very betrayed. Like, how could you? You know, he feels, he, he feels rejected, you know, as a result. Like, oh, he doesn't want me. You know, and that's kind of like the psychology of what's going on, you know, inside this character's head. Um, if there's even really much going on up there other than reactions, but I mean, funny, I was just going to say reaction that, that this whole thing is a, a class or a lesson on when you have proper consciousness, awareness, education, whatever, you know, know how to behave that your reactions are in line with, you know, natural law or being in balance. Whereas if you don't have that, your reactions are to an extreme or you know either harm for yourself or harm to others and yeah it's destructive the reactions because that's all this deals with is reactions how do you react to certain things a stable mind has a certain way of reacting an unstable or instable mind you get the joker yeah and that's very true um so the way that this progresses is like uh he he finds out so he he he's getting made fun of and everything like that and then he finds out uh he comes well, to- isn't that same show that thomas wayne is on that show or on the news or something and he talks about oh yeah these rats these evil rats about you know in the city that killed these you know three wall street guys whatever and they talk about how wayne is going to be out of benefit or something that evening and that's how he knows where to go to try and dad i gotta see my dad are you my father kind of thing right it's when wayne it's when wayne's on the news and he calls everybody clowns 
Yeah. He calls it he calls all the 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 uh the lower class people, he calls them clowns and that he's here to help. He mm-hmm. wants to help them or or that's I think that's how that goes down. The anger and resentment that's been building in the city for weeks seems close to exploding. Protesters, many dressed as clowns, took to the streets today in one of several planned demonstrations taking on the city's elite, including a massive rally outside tomorrow night's benefit at Wayne Hall. What's the point of all this? The rich! Thomas Wayne! That's what this whole thing is about! The whole system! Wayne, who recently announced he's running for mayor, will be attending the benefit. You might remember it was Thomas Wayne who first referred to many of Gotham's residents as clowns. Today, he offered little in the way of an apology. Well, what I will say is there's something wrong with those people. I am here to help them. I'm going to lift them out of poverty, help make their lives better. That is why I'm running. And they may not realize it, but I'm their only hope. It's like that's the whole thing that kind of sparks this is that like this clown killed the dudes on the on the subway then thomas wayne who's running for mayor and says claims to be like this philanthropist who's out to help everybody turns around and calls the same people that he claims to want to help he calls them all clowns you know they're all sick or whatever however he says it mm-hmm. um but yeah he learns that he's got he learns that thomas wayne's going to be at the benefit so he goes there to confront thomas wayne and this is where things get even a little bit more dicey. And uh, what happens is he confronts Thomas Wayne in the bathroom. And I'm pretty sure that bathroom floor has a checkered board pattern. And, but um, he confronts Thomas Wayne in the bathroom. And Thomas Wayne kind of spills the beans on, on what, what went down with Arthur that he's supposedly adopted that um penny got arrested at one point in time when he was a little boy and that she spent time at arkham uh arkham asylum as we all know it as fans of the comics but i think it's just arkham like hospital or something like arkham memorial and this i think yeah it's not arkham asylum as we've all come to know it from the comics and other other iterations but anyways um so he goes there Right. Uh, by the way, he gets punched in the face by Thomas Wayne. His day the yeah. fuck away. Because he actually him. asked him, are you my father? Yeah. And he's yeah. like, no, your mom was crazy. She's a fucking dingbat, you know? And right. she was and, locked up for it. Right. right. And he punches him in the face. He says, you ever come near my son again, I'll fucking kill you. Mm-hmm. So here we go. And like, in, in like the very next breath from being rejected by Murray, he's rejected by Thomas Wayne. So he's like, oh, you know, <laughs> no one wants me. You know, where's my dad type of type of mentality coming on you know what i mean my name is arthur penny fleck is my mother jesus you the guy that came to my house yesterday yes i'm sorry i just showed up but my mother told me everything and I had to talk to you. Look, pal, You're... I'm not your father. <laughs> What's wrong with you? <laughs> Look at us. I think you are. Well, that's impossible. Because you were adopted, and I never slept with your mother. I mean, what do you want from me, money? No, I don't. I wasn't adopted. Jesus, she never told you? Told me what? 
Your mother adopted you while she was working for us. That's not true. Why are you saying that? That she was arrested and committed to Arkham State Hospital oh, when you were just whoa, a little boy. Whoa. Why are you saying this? I don't need you to tell me lies. I know it seems strange. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable. I don't know why everyone is so rude. I don't know why you are. I don't want anything from you. Maybe a little bit of warmth. Maybe a hug, Dad. How about just a little bit of fucking decency? What is it with you people? You say that stuff to my mother? She's crazy. She's... <laughs> <laughs> you think this is funny? <laughs> Dad, it's me. <laughs> Touch my son again, I'll fucking kill you. So he goes to Arkham and this is, this is something that's kind of funny where uh, you see him kind of confess. It's almost like a Catholic confessional type style where the, where the, 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 the bookkeeper or whatever, the, the uh, administrative assistant or whatever you would call the guy on the other side of the glass that gets the file or whatever. He's like, Arthur's like telling him, he's like, I've done a bad thing. And dude's like, uh, I'm not the one that can help you. I'm just like this, this guy who, you know, uh, <laughs> who gets the files. And he's like, you might want to talk to somebody about that. And he's like, oh, you know, uh, it's funny because, oh, what else? Before oh. that, yeah, it's, he tells him, well, I try, but they cut the funding for it. Yeah. Because he tells oh, you might want to get some help. It's like, well, they cut the funding for that. I don't have anybody to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah. I could get any meds. Yeah, I wish I had written everything down to actually do this in order. I keep jumping around. I'm sorry. Nah, it's fine. But um, yeah, the funding for his like psychiatrist and everything, that gets, that gets cut. And now he's off his meds. Mm-hmm. And this kind of leads into some that kind of plays into some things that go forward from that scene as well um and then uh (laughs) so so he gets told all that stuff by the by the orderly or whatever and and uh well the orderly starts reading the file he finds it oh here it is i found the file on whatever the name is of the mother and this and that and it shows all the fucked up stuff and he's like oh wait he got yeah so the so the guy's reading the file and he's like oh yeah she was here he basically gives a little bit of information and then uh for whatever reason come to find out in a minute that you know he he's like he looks up at him and he's like i can't i can't really if you want these files you gotta have her you gotta have penny come here and sign them out so arthur reaches through the glass and steals the file and this is where it all just comes unraveled. Sorry about that, my man. All records, 10 years older, they still in the basement, and you're talking about some 30 years ago, so. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Sure. How does someone wind up in here? Have they all, all the people committed crimes? Oh, yeah, some have. You know, some are just crazy, pose dangers to themselves and others. So I'm just got nowhere else to go. Don't know what to do, you know? Yeah, I hear you, brother. <laughs> Sometimes I don't know what to do. Last time I ended up taking down on some people, 
I thought it was going to bother me, but it really hasn't. What's that? I fucked up. And did some bad shit. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. It's so hard to describe being happy all the time. Hey, uh, listen, man, I'm, I'm just an administrative assistant, like a clerk. You know, all I do is file paperwork. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. But you should see somebody. You know, they got programs, city services, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. They cut all those. <laughs> all right, here it is. Fleck, Penny Fleck, let's see. Diagnosed by Dr. Benjamin Stoner. No, the patient suffers from delusional psychosis and narcissistic personality disorder. Mm. Was found guilty of endangering the welfare of her own child. What? You said she's your mother? Uh, I'm sorry, man. Like I said, I can't release these records, you know, without, uh, proper forms. I, I could get in trouble. Look, if you want to bring your mom in here to sign, that'll be much easier, but I, I can't, I can't let this go without her signature, okay? I'm sorry. No, man! Come on, man! This is this is like the scene that that it all just comes unraveled. Um, Arthur uh, was the file has paperwork about his adoption. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's reading he, he's reading the file, and it puts Arthur into the room where Penny is being. Um, interviewed by like another psychiatrist it's a younger version of her and he's like imagining himself in the corner this is him just reading the interview the notes you know the minutes from that interview because it's probably being recorded i think there's a recorder on the so they write it down to put it in her file so they know exactly what was said in that meeting so arthur's just imagining himself in the room with that and she's claiming thomas wayne is a very powerful man that he had those documents made up to cover it all up and um this is where as 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 a as the audience we're tested once again with not with with our own grasp on what could really be happening in this movie is he adopted is he really penny's son is he really thomas wayne's <laughs> son or is he really adopted what is going on with this guy and then we find out what happened to him that when he was like four years old, they found him tied to a radiator with bruises all over his body and massive head trauma. We went over this, Penny. You adopted him. We have all the paperwork right here. That's not true. Thomas had that all made up. So it stayed our secret. You also stood by 
or one of your boyfriends repeatedly abused your adopted son and battered you. <laughs> Kenny, your son was found tied to a radiator in your filthy apartment, malnourished with multiple bruises across his body and severe trauma to his head. I never heard him cry. He'd always been such a happy little boy. This is where his supposed condition of laughing comes from. This is where his dissociative identity disorder comes from. Uh, the head trauma could be playing into some other things. But when you, so back to, back to DID, it, it cannot form after ages six to nine. We find out that he's like four years old. Uh, it's, it's the result of repeated or long-term childhood trauma, frequently child abuse or neglect. I think that there's enough evidence in the movie to assume that he was also being raped by this mother's, by his mother's boyfriend. Uh, there's some, there's some little, um, there's flags that are put up in the way of music that lead me to believe that he was being raped or, se or, or sexually abused in some way or another. Um, by, uh, by her, by her, his mother's, um, his mother's boyfriend or whatever. Um, so to really kind of, to really kind of go into that as, as not, uh, not as an aside, but kind of take a little bit of a detour down a, down a, down a different path for a second to kind of get into that. If you look into this, if you look into this movie, real, real careful. You you don't just watch the characters and the you don't just listen to the dialogue. There's more to that. There's things going on in the background. We see a painting in the movie. It's called the Blue Boy. All right, it's an oil painting by Thomas Gainsborough. Back in 1770. Now. Batman fans, or at least cinema, cinematic Batman fans, will recognize this painting from the 1989 Tim Burton Batman, where the Joker is going through the art gallery at the Gotham Museum or whatever, and the, the same paintings in that movie as well. But the, it doesn't just stop there. So a little bit of a history lesson about this painting but wait, what happens at that gallery in that 89 Batman? Is that the one that they're defacing all the pictures and that's the one that he stops? I kind of like this one. I think so. But, you know, then he like gasses everybody except for Vicky Vale and, yeah. and whatever. Um, but by the early 20th century, Marlene Diedrich 
was photographed in a blue boy costume and Shirley Temple appeared as Gainsborough's youth in the movie Curly Top in 1935. Uh, this is when girls and women masqueraded as Gainsborough's blue boy on stage and screen. Doing so, they brought about a, gra- a gradual feminization of the youth in, in, the, in the painting. Shortly after the painting showed up in the main entrance of the Cleaver family residence during the third season of Leave it to Beaver, show in 1959 viewers increasingly associated feminine traits with the boy in blue leading to his connection to an emergent gay culture by september 1970 the blue boy was outed in the pages of mad magazine in a strip called prissy percy in the four panel strip artist jack ricard and writer frank jacobs used contemporary stereotypes of homosexuality to contrast Gainsborough's boy in blue with a group of football players. Stereotypes linking the blue boy and homosexuality were well established when Hank Ketchum, the creator of Dennis the Menace, cast Gainsborough's boy in blue as a sissy in a multi-panel strip that included a line by Dennis confusing the painter Gainsborough and the beat poet and gay peacenik Allen Ginsberg. Ginsburg, if anyone's not familiar with him, Ginsburg was a supporter and member of the North American Man Boy Love Association. If you're not familiar with that, that's a pedophile and pederasty advocacy organization in the United States that works to abolish age of consent laws and legalize sexual relations between adults and children. Okay. To go even more about this, blue boy and uh, gay fetishization Uh, in 1974, former TV. Oh, Ginsburg is also on record of being at, um, at grateful dead concerts. And he would just like come up on stage with a, with a young boy in his arms going, whose kid is this? Is this anybody's kid? And then he would just disappear with the kid. Uh, in 1974, former TV Guide advertising manager Don N. Binder, a.k.a. Don Westbrook, published the first issue of Blue Boy magazine, an upscale gay bi-monthly magazine with nude photography, slick advertisements, and articles by writers such as Christopher Ersherwood and Randy, Randy Sheets, <laughs> Shits, <laughs> uh, rescuing Gainsborough's Blue Boy from sissiness. And Brinder introduced him as the embodiment of the recently liberated gay man. The premiere issue featured a bright blue cover with a photo- photograph of a young man dressed up as Gainsborough's boy in blue from the waist up. And Binder reappropriated Gainsborough's blue boy from the funny pages and transformed a derogatory stereotype into an emblem of pride. Among the gay artists who have embraced the, the blue boy as a symbol of gay emancipation are Robert Lambert, uh, who is a member of Les Petite Bone Bones, and uh, Howard Kotler and Leopold uh, Fowlem. Uh, I don't know what Les Petite Bone Bonbons bon is or whatever, but the point about Allen Ginsberg is very important. The man-boy love association uh, it's sickening to be honest with you, but in the, the, the association needs to be, needs to be made. It's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but it makes sense once you get into the, get into the, the movie and you realize that this, that the, this character's history has to do with, he was 
beaten and severely beaten, including head trauma, bruises all across his body while his mother watched. Okay. Now we see the little calling card of the blue boy in the apartment and in, in, in uh, Arthur's apartment. Okay. So they possess the, they possess the painting or a smaller version of it. Then, um, after he confronts his mother in the hospital about all of this, he kills her. But in the meantime, he admits that like, all this time you told me that I had a disorder and turns out that's just who I really am. So this is the whole persona, uh, shadow self, um, aspect of Arthur Fleck's character. I always hated that name. You know, he used to tell me that my laugh was a condition, that there was something wrong with me. There isn't. That's the real me. I haven't been happy one minute of my entire fucking life. You know what's funny? You know what really makes me laugh? I used to think that my life was a tragedy. But now I realize it's a fucking comedy. But more on that in a minute. The progression goes that he does, he, he, he uh, finds out about all of this history, kills his mother. He finds out that he's invited to be on Murray Franklin's show, comes up with this plan to kill himself on national television. He um, paints up his face. Okay. And as he's painting his face, he's putting on the white base and he paints his tongue and he's doing his makeup and he gets a knock on the door, the doorbell or whatever goes off. And it's the, and it's Randall and 
was it Gary? Gary's like the the midget. I think his name. Yeah, is I think Gary. it's like Gary. Okay. Oh, sorry. He is vertically challenged. Excuse me. Um, I'm such a bigot. Anyways, <laughs> and he's uh, he's he's uh, you know, met with the company of these guys that he used to work with. They heard about his mother, so they came by. They knock. He opens the door. They come in. He closes the door and he puts locks the chain, it. yeah, on the door or locks it up. Top. Yeah. So he he um. So oh, before I go any further, very important here. This is yet again another part part of the movie where you're as a viewer unsure of of what the hell is really going on here again. He's painting his face. He's looking at a picture of his mom while she's a younger lady. And on the back of the photo, it says, love your smile, signed T.W. Thomas Wayne. Just T.W., but T.W., who else could that be? Thomas Wayne. He crumples the photo up in his hand and he like tosses it to the side or whatever. But then the knock on the door and, you know, and he kills the dude. And then he like, he brutally kills the guy. (laughs) Brutally. After right, after putting a cigarette out and like drawing a smiley face with his, with his cigarette right on the wall. And he fucking kills the guy with a pair of scissors, stabs him in the throat, bashes his head in on the wall, all the blood everywhere, blah, blah, blah. The midgets going crazy. And, uh, he, goes, he tells Gary, you're the only one who was ever nice to me. Go you, ahead. You can leave. Yeah, yeah. You can leave. And then the door is still locked. So he's a midget. He can't reach the lock. And it's got a, such a dark humor that you can dark. tell that's why he did that. He locked it because he knew this motherfucker is going to be funny. It's okay, Gary. You can go. I'm not going to hurt you. Don't look. Just go. And so he gives him a kiss on the forehead and unlocks the door and, and uh, lets him go or whatever. And he goes, I'm going to be on Murray Franklin tonight before he lets him go. He let, you know, he lets him know. Um, so somewhere while painting, he's doing, starting to do that dance. He's starting to dance because he's like in his underwear, you know, Yeah. before all this happened or during the, you know, somewhere in there, I know the dance is starting to pop up in there. Well, the dance was happening all along. Okay. So throughout the movie, just to backtrack yet again, thanks for pointing that out, but the dance is happening all along. I'm under the impression that the dance is kind of the way 
he kind of the the metamorphosis happens the the dance is his way of like kind of you know doing this thing where it's like the energy of the joke like his altar is kind of going through him because that's what happens when you disassociate at such a young age or even really anytime when you're really disassociating this is how they make mind controlled this is how they do mind control this is how they make complete mind control slaves it's one technique is through disassociation of the of the subject get that person to disassociate and while they are in that state you can kind of put in there the things that you need to be in there and they'll be more receptive to it as so, so long as they're in a disassociative state so i think that while he was young and that he was obviously tortured and that made him disassociate and we see him associate he's we he's he bangs his head like i said before, earlier on and that's his way of coping it's a coping mechanism because that's what was going on with him while he was dis, while he was disassociating right somewhere in there the banging of the head his it was a trigger it's a his 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 coping mechanism of banging his head against something that we see him do a couple of times in the movie is supposed to be is supposed to be like paying homage to like what happened to him when he was a kid in some way shape or form whether it's his coping mechanism or it's just like oh this is what this is what happens to me when I'm going through stressful situations is that like I have to bang my head because that's what was going on back then he doesn't understand why he's really doing it he just knows that he just knows that that happened to him once and it like distracted him from the rest of the shit that was going on you know i was thinking two of one thing but it's actually another thing as you were talking about that i was thinking about Gollum and the Lord of the Rings hitting his head, but I don't think he does. Yeah, he does do that. But then also in Harry Potter, you get Dobby. Since Dobby was abused by, you know, the freaking Malfoys, he's freaking bad Dobby, bad Dobby hitting his head. Again, it's that traumatized, repetitive, like what happens here? What happens here? Let me get to a familiar point. Abuse, 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 trauma. So I don't know. That just kind of stood out to me as you were talking. And somewhere in there before the killing and or getting painted he does goes to his girlfriend's place and walks in and sits at the couch and she comes on what are you doing here that's when we start realizing wait why is she freaking out that he's there because what was happening the relationship with her was all in right 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 i i totally missed that part too i'm i'm all over the place but yeah that was when he uh that was right after he killed his mom Mm -hmm. and he goes back and he goes i had a really bad day and she's like um who are you what are you doing in my apartment (laughs) you're in the wrong apartment you know is your your name's arthur right right yeah that's as the as the viewer we're like oh my god he's been he has been uh he's been um fantasizing this whole entire time about being in a relationship with this woman. And this is another part where it, where the character is reaching out to a certain demographic of men and that exist and they're called incels. 
And for anyone that doesn't know that term, it's involuntary celibate. And a lot of these men have a lot of trouble having relationships with women. And um, it can lead to really bad things happening, such as a sense of entitlement when it comes to relationships with women. This is how I think... Uh, this is how I, I, I think it went down with him because I think he's, he's obviously an incel. Um, he fantasizes about walking up to the door, knocking on it and just taking her. And that's the mindset of a lot of incels. They just think that women should be theirs for the taking, you know, that they're entitled to having that type of relationship. Anyways. Yeah. Another part of the movie where you as the viewer are made to question just what the hell is going on here tell you what it did to me i've seen it only two times theatrically and then watching it again the video for this what it threw me for a loop that i was like wait hold on i had to hold a thought until towards the end when this happened i was like oh okay the thought i had possibility do you remember russell crowe's movie a beautiful mind Ever heard of it? Or yeah. what that sickness is where you interact with people who aren't really there? What that mental illness is? I, there's a name for it and I can't I can't remember what it is. But that's what I thought was happening to him. That in his mind, he created this woman and the daughter. And that's what was happening. But they re didn't really exist. But the film showed that, no, they do exist. It's just he initially saw them in the elevator. And then he inserted her into his life, thinking that he had a relationship with her when he did it. So I was taking it to another form of mental health where you're interacting with people that don't even really exist. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. But yeah, it's for sure they, they, they do exist. I mean, in the film, in the film's reality, you yeah. know, in the setting of the film, they do exist. Um, but yeah, this is just... You know, this is how how it really kind of comes comes down to it about the the mindset of an incel is they there's a, there is a large not large but there is a large portion of the incels that think that they should just have access to women like that where you know where they just not like like the the point is that they can just knock on the door the woman answers the door and it's like you have no reason to think that she'll be receptive of this type of behavior but he goes and does it anyways and it's, it's quote rapid in quotes well received that's mm -hmm. the fantasy of an incel is that they'll be able to just throw thrust themselves upon a woman and that she won't be like fuck you motherfucker and like and like beat him up or defend themselves, that the woman will be just submissive, you know? And that's the another part about this too that's just coming to mind now is the whole idea of like the abuse victim cycle, where it's like this dude has spent his whole life being submissive. He just wants somebody to be submissive to him. He wants to be the dominator for once. And that's what he sees himself being with the with his fantasized relationship with this woman from down the hall, you know? Um there's a there's something that I wanted to make sure I tied in here too. Now that we're past that the the whole fantasy land thing, is now we start seeing him kind of merging the shadow with the persona. They're becoming one. So, what's going on here is when he confronts his mother 
in the hospital room and he smothers her before he does it. He says, I used to think that that was my condition. Turns out it's just who I really am. Okay. So he's had this split the whole time and now he's like fully in like not he's fully embracing it and he's integrating it more into his, into his self. Okay. So the ego and the, the shadow are coming together. Okay. Where Arthur was always like being wicked submissive. And then Joker is in there somewhere toiling around being, you know, being the, uh, the, uh, the, the jester. What, I was what, just going to say the jester jump, bouncing around. La, da, 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 hi. Because that was no, the trickster. Sorry, because uh, Carl Jung had many archetypes. One of them was the shadow. Then there was like the child, the mother, the anima, the animus. Mm -hmm. And like the trickster was also an archetype um, of the uh, unconscious, like the collective unconscious within, you know, that exists within each individual type of thing. Anyways, uh, so he becomes, and then, all right, so let's jump back to after he kills his old workmate. And um, his old co-worker, if you will. And then he's in full makeup, right? And he's going down the stairs. And he's dancing on his way down the stairs. The music playing is Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter. <laughs> Gary Glitter was, uh, was found guilty of... Uh, do I have it pulled up here? Yeah. Gary Glitter. So Gary Glitter, Gary Glitter was found guilty on like on child rape charges and sexual assault charges and um, things like things of that nature through the early 2000s. Um, let's see. Yeah, he. so it's really sick stuff. And Gary Glitter uh in an interview with bbc news in 2006 glitter denied that he was a pedophile and claimed not to have knowingly had sex with anyone under 18. he said that he had hoped to put his life back on track and have a career after he left prison in england he continued to blame the press for his downfall and called them the worst enemy in the world alleging that they had paid girls in a bar to arrange a photo uh, scoop glitter did not comment about his previous conviction for downloading child porn several years earlier. Uh, but Christine Badeau, uh, di director of End Child Prostitution, Pornography, and Trafficking, criticized Glitter and said that he was trying to minimize what he had done. Um, on June 15, 2006, in a closed hearing, a three-judge panel of the Supremes, Supreme People's Court of Vietnam heard Glitter's appeal for a reduced sentence. Uh, let's see. But he he was found guilty of these things and come to find out um, in October of 2012, ITV aired the documentary The Other Side of Jimmy Savile and its exposure strand, which detailed allegations of sexual misconduct against uh, Savile, who, you know, had a very nice relationship with Gary Glitter. Um, so glitter was on Jimmy Savile's show a bunch in the past. And there was even, there's even stories about, um, Gary glitter, you know, 
doing stuff to girls like in Jimmy Savile's like uh, green room. There's all sorts of really bad, bad stories about Gary Glitter out there. When this movie uh, was coming out, it had it it got heavily criticized for using that music because Glitter is in jail, and people were worried that he would receive royalties uh for the use of that song in the movie but todd phillips one of the you know the director of the film he refused to back down now i can't really i can't right now find much of what todd phillips had to say about using the music in the film but it was used nonetheless i think this is just another uh, another hint toward the viewer if they can put enough together on their own to suggest that Arthur being Arthur dancing to the dancing down the stairs dressed as the Joker to this music is supposed to solidify that the Joker personality was the inception of the Joker personality in Arthur happened during the sexual abuse that he suffered as a child at the hands of his mother's boyfriend while she stood by and watched. So uh, I think that that's really what brings it all together. You know, it's really supposed to be some really heavy shit that happened to this poor guy. And one other thing that he knows is that uh, the whole city knew this happened. He was in the new, he was in the newspapers when this whole, all this stuff happened to him. We see the newspaper clippings in his mother's file. So now he's got like this, really bad relationship with the world, even worse than it was before, you know? And we know that he's got a bad relationship with the world because we can see if we look at uh, some of the other little hints, if we're on the topic of hints that are dropped with um, different uh, media or diff different things that exist in our world, that were used in the movie. We see the Charlie Chaplin movie called Modern Times. Uh, that's the movie that's being viewed in the theater when he goes in to confront, um, when he goes to confront uh, Thomas Wayne. So people don't know about Modern Times, I'll tell you. So Charlie Chaplin had a famous character that he always played called the Tramp. That was the name of the character. Modern Times is a 1936 American, uh, they call it a part-talky, satirical, romantic, black comedy film. It was written and directed by Charlie Chaplin, in which his iconic Little Tramp character struggles to survive in the modern, industrialized world. The film is a commentary on the desperate employment and financial conditions many people faced during the Great Depression. The conditions created in Chaplin's view by the efficiencies of modern industrialization. So the basic plot of the movie is that the tramp works on an assembly line where he suffers greatly due to the stress and pace of the repetitive work. So we can, we can see a similarity there where uh, Arthur works as a clown and he's stresses the, the he's greatly, uh, he suffers from that by getting beat up. And so it's stress and the pace of repetitive work. 
Uh, he eventually suffered. So again, this is back to Charlie Chaplin's The Tramp in this movie, Modern Times. That character, he eventually suffers a nervous breakdown and runs amok, getting stuck with uh, getting stuck within a machine and throwing the factory into chaos, which in the movie is pretty funny. He is then sent to the hospital, and following his recovery, the now unemployed tramp is mistakenly arrested in a communist demonstration. Okay, and when he's in jail, he accidentally ingests smuggled cocaine. In his in in his subsequent delirium, he avoids being put back in his cell. So he's like doing this weird. He's like he's like walking in line with the rest of the inmates, and he's like falling behind doing this weird he's like spinning all the way over there or whatever it's pretty funny and um he when but when when they all go back to their cells like he like notices that the door to the outside is open so he goes out there and realizes he's like oh i'm not supposed to be out here so he turns back but all the cells are locked so he like runs down the hall and hides and then these other guys come in to like break one of their buddies out and they got like they got like the warden and a couple of the guards at gunpoint, and here comes Charlie Chaplin from around the corner. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know this is a completely different movie, but it's it's pretty funny. And he comes around the corner. He's like, oh, and he like saves the day. So, uh, and he like knocks all the the people trying to perform the jailbreak. He like knocks them all out and like helps the helps the guards or whatever. And they like they think of him as a hero. So they give him, you know, they they give him all sorts of special treatment or whatever, and they give him like an early release, and then he starts he, he like, but he wants to stay in jail, right? So it's like this, it's like this kind of. There's a couple of things that come to mind with that, and it's like first of all, given the plot of the movie Modern Times. And it's only important because it's because it's uh it's featured in the Joker. And we'll get to the scene that's featured in the Joker in just a moment because that's also important. Um but the idea that the that the that the supposed criminal wants to stay in jail, a couple of thoughts come to mind. That the outside world is too difficult for them. And the jail life is easier. And that can be just because of like how it's depicted in the movie Modern Times itself. But it also brings to mind about the institutionalized man. Where you see a bunch of people that um, have been in jail for so long that they don't know how to operate on in the outside world. Think of Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. with, with uh, what's his face? Brooks. Yeah. Josh Hank Redemption, who's like plotting a way to like catch another charge so he stays in jail, but he gets he gets released anyways. Anyways, um that's what comes to mind here. There's very much similarities in the plot line of modern times with the Joker, where you see this city where it's like industrialized and it's really hard for a guy like him to get a job and he gets caught up and like he wants to you know, I, I think it's even hinted at that, like, he might even want to go back to the institution. You know, he might want to go back there. But the scene, th- there's probably more to that than I'm than I'm prepared to really to really get into. But the scene that's featured in the movie in in, in Joker is the scene. What you see 
and if you're a member of the audience and watching Joker, is you see Charlie Chaplin skating in a circle, almost falling off the edge. Now, if you've never seen Modern Times, you wouldn't know this, but that only happens because in that movie, Modern Times, Charlie Chaplin's character is trying to impress the girl that he's with. And Arthur's watching this movie, laughing it up in the theater with the rest of the rich folk. And it's kind of funny that the rich folk are laughing at a movie like that when it shows how much the lower classes struggle in, a, in an industrialized world. Charlie Chaplin's character in that movie is berated by his boss time and time again, for being, being generally just a screw up. But, you know, and that kind of carries over into Joker. So we, we see these, we can compare the two and it makes sense why Todd Phillips would include modern times in Joker. Not only that, but we know that the movie Joker is set in 1981. Just using the title, just using a movie with the title Modern Times tells the audience that this movie, although set in 1981, is also a reflection of 2019, the year the movie came out. So we see this kind of triple play where it's like the things that are going on in the movie itself are going on for reasons, but then the re but for reasons that pertain to the universe that the movie is set in, but the, but the things that are going on in the movie are going on for reasons that, per, that have to do with our objective reality as the viewers. And that's like one of the, one of the like kind of calling cards to that using a movie called modern times is supposed to, Oh yeah. 1981, but it's 2019. Yeah. This kind of stuff. So the class warfare between the rich and the poor in the movie and <laughs> that's going on in this movie Joker is also going on in modern times. Mm -hmm. But it's going on in modern times as well. So it's going on, in, you know what I'm saying? So the movie It's modern, going back in 1930s, 1980, and 2019. It's like right. nothing new. It's still going on. Right, because, the, because Charlie Chaplin's movie is set after the Great Depression when when things are getting more industrialized and the poor people back then are struggling to keep up because the whole world's changing so fast and so we see this kind of overlapping uh kind of theme where it's been going on for a lot longer than just 2008 with the occupy wall street housing crisis from back mm -hmm. then um so, so from there, uh, we, we can just jump right into, you know, he leads the cops on a chase. They get beat up on the subway. He gets the Murray Franklin show and. Well, wait, wait, I want to point out it's important. What happens on the train? There's a lot of people with mask, the Joker, Joker mask. Yeah. And so the cops start taking people's masks. Take that mask off. Take that mask. And the Joker had taken the mask off of someone. And even though he's painted, he put that mask on to blend in with everybody. So he's kind of starting to blend in with everybody else. And the cops are, you know, and yeah, so the cops get into it on a train with somebody that fights back and shooting. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, then they all get off the train and, and Joker does that little prance which is very much reminiscent of how Charlie Chaplin 
would do some do some footwork on screen yeah so there's an association there as well um <clears throat> we know arthur's a fan of old movies because he's in his apartment watching some old navy movie the guys are singing uh, uh something and he shoots the gun but whatever uh anyways uh <clears throat> when he gets to when he when he gets on the show right uh he he gives this he gives this impassioned speech right before he's at the makeup room and he gets introduced okay. to to De Niro's character i can't keep forgetting his name was it murray franklin murray murray yeah and he tells them he asks them call me joker he's like why why do that because that's how you referred to me you know in the video thing so joker okay fine joker yeah. so yeah and i, I remember that uh, that um joker slash arthur was rehearsing this because he's in his apartment and he's playing a video ladies and gentlemen welcome actor whatever and an actor comes out played by justin thoreau so he comes out and the way he waves and like does he starts imitating that like okay how do, how am i going to behave and sit down and like <laughs> so he's imitating rehearsing the whole thing so yeah yeah and then he takes other guy yes and he imitates the suicide yep yep another important dark thing in this movie suicide so not only was it in the joke in the elevator and in the hallway now in the real world he's talking about killing himself on the show yep blowing the brains out of the back of his skull you know, and, uh, you know, but he gets on stage and obviously he has second thoughts, but he gives this impassioned speech about. Um, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just, you know, it's been a rough few weeks, Murray. <laughs> Ever since I killed those three Wall Street guys. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. There's no punchline. It's not a joke. You're serious, aren't you? You're telling us you killed those three young men on the subway? Mm-hmm. And why should we believe you? I ain't got nothing left to lose. Nothing can hurt me anymore. <laughs> My life is nothing but a comedy. Well, let me get this straight. You think that killing those guys is funny? I do. And I'm tired of pretending it's not. Comedy is subjective, Murray. Isn't that what they say? All of you, the system that knows so much, you decide what's right or wrong the same way that you decide what's funny. Or not. Well, okay, I, I think I, I might understand that you did this to start a movement, to become a, a symbol. Come on, Murray. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? I killed those guys because they were awful. Everybody is awful these days. It's enough to make anyone crazy. Okay, so that's it. You're crazy. That's your defense for killing three young men? No, they couldn't carry a tune to save their lives. Oh, why is everybody so upset about these guys? 
If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. I pass you every day and you don't notice me, but these guys, what, because Thomas Wayne went and cried about them on TV? You have a problem with Thomas Wayne. Too. Yes, I do. Have you seen what it's like out there, Murray? Do you ever actually leave the studio? Everybody just yells and screams at each other. Nobody's civil anymore. Nobody thinks what it's like to be the other guy. You think men like Thomas Wayne ever think what it's like to be someone like me? To be somebody but themselves, they don't. They think that we'll just sit there and take it like good little boys, that we won't werewolf and go wild. You finished? I mean, there's so much self-pity, Arthur. You sound like you're making excuses for killing those young men. Not everybody, and I'll tell you this, not everyone is awful. You're awful, Murray. Me? I'm awful? Oh, yeah? How am I awful? Playing my video. Inviting me on the show. You just wanted to make fun of me. You're just like the rest of them. You don't know the first thing about me, pal. Look what happened because of what you did, what it led to. There were riots out there. Two policemen are in critical condition. You're <laughs> laughing. You're laughing. Someone was killed today because of what you did. I know. How about another joke, Murray? No, I think we've had enough of your jokes. What do you get? I don't think so. When you cross I think a mentally ill loner with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash! Call the police, I'll Gene. tell you what you get! Call the police! You get what you fucking deserve! Always remember, that's... Breaking news. Popular TV talk show host Murray Franklin shot dead tonight on the live telecast of his program by one of his guests. by Franklin as Joker is currently under arrest. Nearly just a punchline to a joke. Murray Franklin, dead tonight. If it was me dying on the sidewalk, you'd walk right over me. To all of those who have been ignored by the system. And as you see, Gotham is burning. So, what we see there is he is equating the he uses the term comedy right and he's equating it he's saying that comedy is subjective and it's just like how people determine right from wrong so he's talking about moral relativism and he's saying and you know um the part the part about <laughs> The, the the part about like you know no one picturing what it's like to be the you know do you think Thomas Wayne ever 
ever thinks what it's like to be somebody like me and and everything like that like there is there there is some there is some truth into what he's saying where it's like yeah they're they're you know not about the moral relativism part but about the about the part about uh people need to kind of have some empathy put put yourself in somebody else's shoes for a minute before you start treating them like trash you know and he doesn't he doesn't claim that he killed those guys in self-defense. He just says because they were awful. So it makes you think back to that scene. Like, was he thinking about doing that before he actually did it? You know, was it not because he's getting beat up? You know, the guys couldn't carry a tune. Those guys were guys were singing. You know, this, this guy's clearly just a psychopath. What do you think? Yeah, I think it was uh, behind the scenes, behind the consciousness. The Joker knew what he wanted to do, but Arthur w- was the uh, the punching bag. <laughs> so, you know, he let Arthur, you know, like, I'm going to laugh, I'm going to laugh, like, because Joker knew what he was doing, the laugh, 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 get those guys over here, they're going to freaking beat him up, and then that'll allow Joker to do what he wants to do. So he was using Arthur, kind of. That's how I read that. Yep. And the, the way he says it, like, what do you get when you cross a mentally ill loner with a society that treats him like trash and you get what you fucking deserve? And it's like, it's like, okay, that's not the solution. Okay. Doing, doing something like that. It, it's not the solution. <laughs> and, you know, would he have been mentally ill if it weren't for the trauma that he suffered from as a, as a child? You know what I mean? Like it's, it it just brings to mind this idea of like the many different ways to find like a solution. How do we, how do we heal, you know, uh, to bring it, to bring it kind of into the whole like natural law, uh, kind of domain of natural law, you know, it's like part of the whole point is, is trying to, you know, treat people with, uh, treat people right you know, to learn objective morality, to treat people, to treat other people right, other living things right, you know, correctly. And, you know, that, that scene, it it just, it, it just kind of seals the deal on the whole, on the whole thing. What do you, what do you think? Well, I think it just takes it to the extreme. However, it's that uh, consequence, it's turning consequence on its head because I, for one, kind of tend to agree with Joker, (laughs) you know, right there is like you get what you fucking deserve. But when you look at it, it is people like him, people like Hollywood. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody knows the class warfare thing, but nobody really uses their place, you know, their mantle to point it out and do something about it. They still try to capitalize on it you know capitalism capitalize this guy entertainment ratings like oh look at this more schmuck so it's yeah it's extreme like you're gonna shoot somebody in the head for fucking abuse but it's kind of showing is like well wait they, they try and talk they try and say help they try and you go through the proper channels but nothing ever really changes it's not until somebody gets shot in the fucking head when people take notice see so it's kind of i'm like mm. and interestingly or synchronistically enough that's kind of like the point I'm at, you know, with the podcast and everything, how we talk, you know, all this stuff is going on 12, 13 years, you know, great work and waking up and knowing everything that's going on. And we need to awaken people and consciousness. And it's a, you know, it's a, a evolution in consciousness, not a revolution and all this stuff. However, it's like, what do you actually see happening in the world? Things are getting worse. And it's like, well, how did we get here? Because 
all the good people keep getting killed. You know, as George Carlin said, you know, Gandhi, JFK, you know, freaking G, all these people, boom, shot in the head, you know? So yeah. the violence gets it done quicker or that violence, but defensive use of force, the, you know, standing up to the oppressors. No, 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 we don't want to do that. So I can kind of, you know, get what the Joker's trying to, you know, put out there with this. But again, everything's, inverted or abused or you know right. obfuscated to be kind of like see that's what you don't want to do it's like well because that's going to keep the things in place you know but nothing's really going to change it's it's <clears throat> so his his plight is all about you know that everybody's awful and then if mm-hmm. it was him what he says in that scene if it was me on the like, dying in the street you just walk right over me yep you know, but everybody, everybody cries about like Thomas Wayne cries about these Wall Street guys, and and like that's a part I I I do tend to agree with. What like what what's going on is, like it or not, what he's doing is he's taking action in that scene by initiating this this revolt, right? Because that happened on live television. And what you see in the following scene is he emerges in the back of a cop car, right? The scene shows him in the back of a cop car and the whole city is just erupting. And it wasn't like that before he did that. Like that was the thing that just was just like, it's the spark that it was simmering. It was bubbling like the train, the scene in the train, people were already like, something's going to happen, but it hadn't happened yet, but you can sense it. Right. Like they were going to like a protest or something. Right. Or, or, you know, or they were, you know, everyone is dressed like that. You, you can, Oh, something's going on. You know, here's this uh clown world type of thing going on. Everyone's dressed as a clown. But then when he comes out and he's in the back of the, of the squad car, he's, uh, he's surrounded by, by all this chaos, just absolute, just, just chaos erupting in the streets, cars burning, people smashing windows, all sorts of crazy craziness going on. And you're led to, you're watching this go in the movie and you're like, Oh, this is going on because he shot the, he shot Robert De Niro in the face on live television. Everyone's like, Oh, now's our chance. Let's go, you know, let's do this. And, um, he, what is, what one way to look at this is, is that somebody who, would be taking action in such a way for the reasons that he takes the action where he's like saying like, you know, you get what you fucking deserve. And it's like, yeah, maybe these people do deserve something. Maybe, maybe it does need to come down to something like that. You know, the person who (laughs) the moral relativistic type of mindset Put that to the side for a second and um, dare I say it might be it, it might be something that needs to happen. <laughs> I mean the the action taken to wake everybody up to exactly what's going on here, you know and it's like it, it's not psychotic. He's not a he's not psychotic. He 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 says, here's all these things that have been going on. Here's how society is treating people like me like fucking trash. And you know what you get? You get what you fucking deserve. And he's a man of action at that point. 
and they're painting men of action as psychopaths in that movie, in that scene. You know, right now something clicked listening to you talk that I don't didn't hear you make a connection, and I didn't make a connection until now. Obviously, for dramatic effect and for um what you misdirection, yeah, you get what you deserve, and he shoots Murray. So it's like, oh, that's bad. You shouldn't kill him. He had nothing to do with it. But I think it's symbolic. You get what you deserve as a people, as a culture, as a society, as a mindset. Because instead of shooting Murray and, and saying you get what you deserve, picture him killing his mother, saying you get what you deserve. You were a witness. You let evil occur in front of me and didn't do anything. So by that, you created this me, this person that now is like, oh, they're the clowns. They're the dirty ones. They're the, ugh, ugh, we don't deal. So now that comes back full circle. You get what you deserve because you did not do right when you had a chance to prevent it or or correct it when it was happening. So yeah. you get what you deserve. So I think symbolically he's talking about not just Murray, but it's society, everybody, everything that's going on. It's all of our fault. Because we allowed things to happen. We tolerated. Remember, we did a podcast, The Obfuscation of Tolerance, right there. The mother tolerated. Murray tolerates. Everybody make joke of it. Society knows what's wrong and right, you would think, but yet they allow the evil to flourish. So it's like, yeah, in essence, you are participating in evil. Hence, you are evil. You're an enabler of evil, so you get what you deserve. That's what I. That's how I think this thing is kind of geared at, you know, that's how I kind of read it. Exactly. Now I'm going to point out something else that you didn't mention. And I picked it up right at the beginning of the movie. There's a TV or radio on, and they're talking about the news, the weather, the garbage not being collected, rats, rats. you know? So the, 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 yeah, super rat, all this kind of stuff. Right? But yet there's a, something that said all these super rats and they said something about needing or having or or this is a time to have a pied piper to lead the rats out of the city mm. that right there i was like oh okay i heard that pied piper as the movie progressed pied piper started growing on me that now i see it everywhere joker himself was a pied piper that's why i kept referring to everybody else in the city as rats because that's kind of like it was again symbolic that the trash in the city, like dirty super rats, they're all whatever. We need a pipe piper to lead them out of here or, you know, take them, walk them off the cliff or off the ledge into the water and drown them. That was Joker. He's the pipe piper. His thing at the end on the TV or whatever, eventually with the mask, everything he was doing, he was a pipe piper leading people to do what needed to be done, leading them, you know, in that direction. He was leading the people. So that not only in this movie, but now resonates with a whole bunch of other movies that I've seen. For example, Convoy with Chris Christopherson, a little bit of an anarchist thing, the drivers. None of that starts until Chris Christopherson decides to defy freaking uh, whatever dirty, um, whatever freaking Ernest Borgnine's character was. And then everybody starts following on. He's the Pied Piper. He leads them to that. Another movie I saw, um, what was it? Uh, Poseidon Adventure with Gene Hackman. The ship float, you know, gets hit by a wave and it's turned upside down. And you got people that want to stay and listen to authority, the captain of the ship and all this stuff. But 
Gene Hatburn's character is like, no, we're upside down. We need to go. We need to. He's the Pied Piper and leads a select few to go to survive. So now I'm starting to see that steam, this theme everywhere in society that it is true that Pied Piper, the one who leads. Now, Pied Piper, the, the theme, it's neutral because it can be a Pied Piper leading people into good or leading people into evil, into bad. And now I, I'm thinking about a show called The Strain from 2014. And that had the master, it dealt with a virus, a vampire kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was a Pied Piper leading these people, zombifying them into, into evil, into doing bad stuff. So this whole concept of the Pied Piper, I think, has been around for a long time and has been prevalent in a lot of movies. But I don't think we've really made that connection that that is a theme or an archetype or something of the Pied Piper and watching Joker and hearing that uh, news radio thing, whatever, in the beginning, talk about Piper. I was like, they said that for a reason. That was in there for a reason. And then by the end, I was like, I bet you that's what it was to make it look like Joker is the Piper leading everybody else to do what needs to be done. Right. Because, uh, because after the, the Joker's in the squad car, they gets hit by an ambulance and they, yes. they, obviously they they put the guy on a pedestal there mm-hmm. now he is their leader like here here's the guy that started all of this we've already been idolizing him now we know that it, we were idolizing him before we knew that he, Who really he was even existed <laughs> yeah right like now we know here's the guy here's our leader everyone's cheering for him and he's like yay i'm finally you know um I'm finally, you know, where I've always wanted to be like accepted, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And, uh, so about that whole thing that you were, that you were hitting on about karma, you know, and you get what you fucking deserve. Right. And he's like the man of action. Like, you know what I mean? Uh, the, he's, he's like the, the, the actor, you know what I mean? He killed his mother. He kills Murray. And then the very last scene of the movie, um, he uh oh by the way the reason why him getting noticed is such a big deal is because he's a solipsist he's a solipsist he's a nihilist you know there's a scene in the movie where he tells his therapist as she's like saying hey we're, we got our funding cut and everything he's like i didn't think anything was real i didn't think you know i didn't think any of it was real like all this solipsistic kind of attitude but he kills his mother kills murray then because of his actions, the chaos, the riots, and everything erupt. Then we see what happens to Thomas and Martha Wayne in the alleyway. They get murdered. Okay, that's the classic, you know, this is when Batman was born type of thing. And uh, it's like, oh, very, a, a very uh, kind of strange and unique take on it. That it's, you know, the riots that the Joker caused that leads to Batman, you know, being born. Because it's because in the lore, it's widely known that that's the night when ba- when Bruce Wayne kind of stopped being just Bruce Wayne, and that's when he became Batman as well. He just doesn't know it yet, and he finds out. You know what I mean? So then, um, anyways, then we see him. In- ah, you didn't catch it. What? So originally. The Waynes come out of watching Zorro. Yeah. All right. In here, if you paid attention, and it ties into something you said earlier, they come out of watching Zorro 
but it's Zoro the gay the blade. Gay blade. Yeah. So again, see, so it's Zoro, but then they put that homosexual that thing in there. I was like, interesting that they twisted that up to put the gay blade, not the regular straight Zoro. Right. And blade is always in you know, in in occult symbolism, blade it can be known as like the phallus. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? So um they get the 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 Waynes get murdered and it's all because of the riots and now we see that it's a catchphrase now because and we know that the because when he's when they're getting murdered the guy goes hey wayne you get what you fucking deserve and then he blasts them away yeah. and the, the pearls and all the all the typical you know mm-hmm. thomas martha wayne stuff goes on you see all over the place every time we don't need to see it again but we saw it again it was just a different take on it and then we see uh we see joker being idolized by the crowd and then we see arthur uh back in a mental institution being interviewed by the lady and uh he's like laughing about something and she she's like oh he's like oh i just thought of a joke what what, how does he say it? he goes you know oh you wouldn't get it What's so funny? It's just like, just thinking of a joke. <laughs> Do you want to tell it to me? She said, well, what's so funny? It's like, and it cuts, it cuts to Bruce Wayne standing in an alleyway alone over his dead parents. Okay. The joke, <laughs> hear me out. The joke is that he killed his mother. He got his father. He, he killed his proxy father and Murray. And through his actions, his supposed, who could be his real father, uh, also got killed. And now, now the son of the guy that started all of this is going to grow up an orphan pretty much just like him with his own trauma mhm and that's Didn't do and that's the joke <laughs> i got to go to bed <laughs> all right that's it <laughs> not to mention that he then kills that was led to believe that he killed that uh doctor therapist whatever because he's walking through the hallway out of the office and leaving red footsteps as he goes down the hall turns a corner runs one way he's being chased by somebody runs the other way he's being chased and then we uh end the movie and that's it (laughs) to be continued (laughs) at least joker is because they are working on a second one because i think that made a billion dollars so it's like when money talks you know hey we can do another one (laughs) Yeah, and the overarching theme of the entire movie Joker is is um, destruction of of masculinity, basically, and it's an attack on masculinity, much like we see a lot of the times where you see this guy, and he's a psycho, and then the next one is Falle Du, and that's going to be featuring uh, Harley Quinn, 
as well. And I think that that movie is going to be primarily focused on uh, the sacred feminine, feminine aspect and destruction of that. So we'll see what happens. Neo-feminism, probably. Maybe. All right. So, yeah. Well, James, damn, maybe a little over two hours, two hours, 20 plus, whatever. So good times. So we wanted to do this for a while. I know you brought this up to, you know, maybe a year or two or three or five. (laughs) A while back, you brought this idea up of doing this. So I'm glad we sat down and did this and made me discover some stuff because watching it the second time, my radar was up. And like I said, I picked up the whole, you know, few new things. And, oh, you did say about the two hands. And if I watch it again, I could have swore that Arthur did not smoke. It was Joker who smoked. So whenever he was smoking, it was the left hand. At the end, when you, like you said, they combined and became one, he started smoking with his right hand also. So I was like, huh, interesting. Very possible. Yep. Anyway, all right. So that's it for this episode three of Guy Next Door Speaks on films, TV, and music. James, once again, thanks for coming on. Doors always open or cameras always open or microphones always open, whatever. So yeah, we got to do this again. All right. So people that want to follow your work, what do you have out there? Uh, just search uh, a hitchhiker's guide to truth. That's my, that's my regular podcast. I, I try to go live every Saturday night at 9 PM Eastern standard time. And, uh, you know, I, I got a few, I got a, a couple of months worth of shows booked as it, as it, as it is right now. So coming out in the new year, you know, swinging and it's, it's really great. So come on over there, go to freeyourmindne.com. Uh, to check out my website and, you know, f- find more for me to, you know, get in touch with me in the various ways that you can. So that's, that's about that. So, uh, just, you know, just, uh, you know, come, come and find me and please watch my show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, James, as Hi. always good talking with you, man. Uh, very insightful, a lot of details. So for everybody else um should be getting back on uh doing some great work here in the next uh week or two i'll be d- dropping another show with douglas martin and see what good stuff we get into movies here and there all right so as always i'm ivan from phoenix thanks for watching and as again depending what time of day you're watching this good morning good afternoon or good night and be well all right so as you notice, the backgrounds have changed some for some of us. Um, it's another day. And after beginning the edit, I know I'm snitching like a mother, ain't I? But anyway, so <laughs> the beginning of the uh, episode, I posted uh, stay tuned for bonus content. And this is that bonus content. And what it is, is some of the stuff we may have forgotten to <laughs> mention during the original recording. It happens. We're only human. Anyway, so... James, here we are with some bonus stuff. What are some things that you think we missed that we probably did or didn't or whatever, but it was all you. It's your fault. I'm just saying. It is. (laughs) (laughs) I take full responsibility for this. Take it like a man. Yeah, take (laughs) it. (laughs) But um, I... After, you know, when, when we're done recording these, these podcasts and everything, you have downtime, you, you you do a post game type of type of, you know, (laughs) debriefing and you think about things and turns out there's some, there's some details that we left out. 
about about uh about a pretty significant aspect of the film where it has to do um with the usage of mirrors in in the film uh specifically when arthur is looking at a reflection of himself so what we're what we're getting at here is basically just um when he's looking in the mirror it 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 is it is of course a reflection of himself but that reflection is supposed to represent the altered personality within him it's supposed to represent this and um if if uh if i'm correct then well let's let's look at a couple of other examples from other other films right we have uh the first live action Spider-Man movie directed by Sam Raimi in that we have Willem Dafoe playing Norman Osborn. And he's obviously, he, he gets turned into, he turns himself into the green goblin. And when he's having diet, when Norman is having dialogue with the goblin, he's usually looking in a reflection of himself, of himself. Um, and the reflection is the goblin. So when we see the reflection, that's when we see the goblin speaking. So that's one example. Another example, of course, if uh, we have any, you know, Lord of the Rings fans out there, we know that when Schmeagel is uh, speaking with Gollum, uh, usually what we see, well, in one scene in particular, actually, we see him conversing with Gollum in a, in a reflection. He's looking down into like a pond. And he's speaking back and forth with Gollum. And the way that the film sets it up is, of course, the reflection is Gollum. Now, we know that this this character in Lord of the Rings started out as Smeagol and was turned into Gollum with the corruption of the ring. So Gollum would be the altered personality in this, in this relationship. Uh, and, of course, as I previously mentioned, Norman Osborn is the base character and then we have um we have the green goblin being the altar that gets created now we apply that same idea to the to joker and uh what we see here is we see the the character arthur looking in mirrors from time to time throughout the movie and what you mentioned is that actually what one thing that we actually missed out on is that the opening scene is not just him you know, twirling that sign around and getting beat up. The opening scene is actually him looking in the mirror and putting on his makeup, forcing him, like pulling, using his fingers, like fish hook style, pushing, pushing up his mouth for a smile and tears are running. A tear is running down his face. This is uh, to me, a, a sign that we're, we're looking at a severe, like a, a, a like a, an individual who does not like what he sees. He's tormented. Something's going on within him. And he's looking in the mirror. And I believe that the reflection is, is Joker. So whenever we're seeing Arthur look in the mirror, we're not looking at Arthur looking in the mirror. We're looking at the reflection. Okay? Like, it, it's not like the camera pans around at all. It's always like a shot from the back, you know, and, and, we're, and the camera's focused on the mirror itself. We met, we, uh, well, I, I missed the, I missed out on mentioning that 
when he when he kills those three guys in the subway and he's running home, he stops in the bathroom and he does his dance. And the dance is a symbol of metamorphosis where the, the, this energy is running through him that the energy of the Joker, this transformation is gradually happening throughout the movie. And it's this weird contorted dance that he does when he's like, you know, doing this, it's almost like a, like, you know, what would you call it? It's like a, um, it's like, like not a, not a blossoming, but like a flower opening. Because he keeps doing like an open, close kind of thing. Remember how he did that wings? So it's like a trap, like you said, transition. It's like a blossom. Something's coming out, cocoon, metamorphosis, like you said. So that's what it is. Like something's opening up, opening up kind of thing. Right. An alien coming out of the chest, like a joker coming out of him. So that's the movement. Right. <laughs> and what it reminds me of is it's it's vaguely reminiscent of people that practice Tai Chi, where they're where they're moving their body. They're moving their they're moving their limbs around and they're 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 you know kind of twisting their body up and using that spiritual energy and forcing it from one end of the body to the other, and it is vaguely reminiscent of that. Also, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, of an interpretive dance, but I I suspect that this is the metamorphosis period from Arthur integrating the shadow self, which is. The shadow self within, like we mentioned before, the shadow self within Arthur is the Joker. Um, and it's a slow integration. Now we see him looking in the mirror uh, after he kills those three guys. And if I'm remembering the scene correctly, it's a very dark room. And the mirror is showing a reflection of a person who looks borderline demonic. And... uh Maybe we can throw throw a picture of that up, you know, at this point. And then what we're what we see again is we're gonna take this right up until uh we're gonna take we're we're gonna take this up to a couple of different points. So one of the reflections actually in, does not involve a mirror at all. It involves the scene when he's looking at the newspaper, the front page of the newspaper, and he sees himself on the front page of the newspaper, but it's not a reflection of him at all. It's a caricature of this clown that killed the guys on the subway. He knows that it's him on the front page. He sees himself as that caricature of the clown on the front page. He knows that's representative of him. He mimics, he tries to mimic the facial feature, the the facial expression, sorry, of the cartoon depiction of him that's featured on the front page. That in itself is is a sort of reflection because he's looking directly at it as if he's looking at a mirror and he actually likes what he sees. It's feeding into his narcissism and he's happy that he's getting attention. Now, whether or not he actually likes the cartoon depiction of him, because it does look very demonic, you know, the, the newspaper, if I'm not mistaken, it does look like a demon clown on the front page of the paper. And he tries to, you know, he like does Pennywise, that. like Pennywise. Kind yeah, of. he snarls his teeth, you know, at the, and tries to mimic the, the facial features of, of the, of the front page of the paper. And then, um, we also see him looking in the mirror when his coworkers are giving him giving him some shit 
you know, and uh, what else do we see? No, when he goes to collect his things um, after he gets fired, during that scene, he's, he grabs a mirror from inside of his locker. And for a brief moment, he has a look of disgust on his face when he looks in the mirror and then he grabs it as if to say, I don't want to look at myself. So it's a lack of self-respect, not in the sense of like treating yourself right, but like to look at yourself and to assess yourself honestly, to know where you're at. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to avoid that. So, and, and then we take in the idea that this, that this reflection of himself, it's a symbol of the shadow self within him. So that's just further, you know, reinforces my point about not wanting to take a good look at yourself because this is a struggle between the persona and the shadow self actually having a struggle of integration. And then, and then what we're looking at is just this dude who's, who is the, who's going through this. Okay. And this is of course applied with all the trauma and all the other stuff that's going on, but we can take, we can take this and kind of have we can kind of take it and look at it on its own, just like what these, what these different scenes could represent just standing on their own. Okay. And then we can apply it to, we can apply it to the character. It's himself. So we're looking at somebody who knows that somewhere deep down inside of him is this extremely violent person. And he's wearing a mask to try to please people. This is where this is indicated when we see him laughing right before he gets chewed out by his boss, right? Not from when he gets fired, but when he, when the sign gets taken from him and he goes back to his workplace and the boss is like, where's the sign, Arthur? You know, and, uh, he, he even gets told that the guys, that the other guys that work there think he's a freak. You know, that's a line that he has to, that's a line that he has to hear, which is unfortunate. Um, but he he's in the changing room and somebody tells like a, a stupid joke and he starts laughing that, that, that insane laugh of his. And then as soon as he exits the room, he just shuts it right off. Hey Gary, you know what I've always wondered? No, I don't. Do you people call it miniature golf or is it just golf to you? <laughs> <laughs> Punch him in the dick, Gary. <laughs> so we, we as the audience can tell that like he's faking it. He's doing it so he can feel like he's fitting in. So he's got this, he's, he's got this mask on and it's not even the makeup. See, when he puts the makeup on, that's when he's his true self. Okay. We've never really known a Joker in the whole lore of Batman that have that has had a name other than Joker. Now there's been other there's been other depictions where it's like oh Joe Chill or Joe like other weird things, but it's never been as popularized as it has been with this movie. See the the big thing about Joker in general is that you never know who this guy really is. He's just Joker. So he is the embodiment of a shadow uh, character. Okay. He's like, so not to derail too much, but, um, uh, and I'll keep it brief because there's a lot to go into this and it's like <laughs> completely different 
it's like a completely different episode. So we're just trying to talk about Joker here, but it, it does. We, we do need to mention very briefly that Batman is the shadow archetype uh, applied, to ba- uh, applied to Bruce Wayne. So Bruce Wayne is the mask. Bruce Wayne is the persona. And then the shadow self of Bruce Wayne is Batman. Okay. And then, of course, Batman has a shadow. And it's supposed to be represented of, as the Joker. You know, the Joker represents Batman's shadow. See, the Joker doesn't have it. It's, it gets complicated from there, but the Joker doesn't have a, a mask. But for the first time we re- in cinema, we really see the Joker having a mask, and that is Arthur Fleck. So when he puts on the makeup, that's his true self. And we know that because of what he says to his mother in the, in the hospital room before he suffocates her to death. That, you know, and through the metamorphosis like that he goes through with the dancing and this and the, and the crimes and the what have yous, you know, we, we see this kind of trend going on. And then the first time that he's able to actually like look in a mirror and, and feel like he's at balance is right before he kills that dude in, the, in his own apartment. And he's putting on the makeup and he, you know, wipes his tongue with it and everything like that. And he's like finally, you know, focused on something of what he's going to what he's going to do next. You know, I think they may have hinted in the 89 Batman, because if you remember before anything of a Joker, there was Jack, whatever. What was his name? Nicholson's name, Jack something. He was Jack, whatever. And then after he becomes a Joker, Jack Palance's character says, Jack, how do we cut a deal? He says, Jack, Jack is friend, dead, my friend. You can call me Joker. And as you can see, I'm a lot happier. And then he kills him. But then later on in the movie, he paints his white face with the skin color tone so he can put on a mask of being Jack. See, so right. it kind of resonates with what you're talking about, that once he actually is the Joker, now he has to wear a mask about being that other person that's not the Joker, you know. Right. Well, Jack Nicholson's Joker is more is more consistent with the Joker that we saw in the Alan Moore comic called the, the Killing Joke, where he gets pushed into a vat of chemicals, right, and then he comes out and his skin is all bleached or whatever, and he looks yeah. all crazy. Uh, he's got the crazy, you know, he, he's scarred up and it looks like makeup and all that, all that stuff. But yeah, you're right, and I'm and I I just left that out too. But when we're talking about you know a very like, you know, it's that's a that's a more classical depiction where it's like you're not really seeing him as his original self throughout that movie in 1989 in the Tim Burton movie you're not really seeing the Joker character as his as his you know original self quote quote unquote original self as much it's not as heavily stressed upon as much as it is in the 2019 Joker movie. Right. But when, you know, Arthur is going around and you see what this guy has to deal with on a day-to-day basis and like, and, and everything like that. So that's why it's more, in my opinion, more important to kind of focus on what, on that, on that aspect and why that's like comes to, you know, comes to mind more so than, than the 1989 uh, Tim Burton movie. And funny that you mentioned about painting the face to look regular um and and in the he the Heath Ledger depiction of the Joker right we know that he's wearing makeup because throughout the movie you can see different scenes where it's like kind of running down his face or it rubs off or whatever but then you see when they shoot Jim Gordon Commissioner Gordon or whatever he's got all the makeup off so he can blend in and pretend to be a cop 
Yeah. So, I mean, like that's just another time in, in cinema where you see the Joker, what the Joker's face would look like if it weren't for the white and the red and, and how the Joker typically looks, which, which way they go about it, you know, is all is different from time to time, of course, but like the same effect where you see the, you see the, the skin, you know, you, you see the skin without the makeup or the other way around Jack Nicholson's case. But, yeah. um, so yeah, that's basically, that's basically it with the mirrors. Uh, I, it, um, now in certain occult practices, the mirrors are used in magical rituals. Now I, I, I'm not very well versed in this, but I know that that actually does exist. But, um, what we're, but what we're looking at is not really necessarily a magical ritual with, with the Joker, but it's interesting to kind of point out when it comes to like, you know, seeing other versions of yourself, maybe, you know, like uh, realities, what's reality. And you had pointed out to me earlier with the matrix has that mirror that he puts his finger in there and, boom, you know, so mirrors again, reflection of, you know, going one, what's real, this reality, that reality. So you don't know, you know, what's real or what's not who you really are or who you aren't, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, we covered the oh something else <clears throat> something else that i wanted to that i wanted to make sure that we mentioned was that um this guy isn't something i may have gotten wrong in our original our original take on this was i may have implied that this guy was just a completely submissive person now when it comes to when it comes to his interactions with others it seems that that's definitely the case for the about the first half of the movie but we don't necessarily need to take take away from that that he's completely submissive in the sense that he's not um feeling the need to lash out and to defend himself i believe that that feeling is being heavily suppressed within him and it and it's and it's clear that that's kind of happening because after he gets chewed out by his boss over that stupid sign that got stolen and damn and destroyed by those punks at the beginning of the movie um we see him in an alleyway and he's viciously beating like some trash in the alleyway and we know that he's like we know that he's capable of feeling this these emotions and and actually expressing these emotions so I don't think that we could really classify him as somebody who's necessarily like a sociopath. I think that he just disassociates because a sociopath typically is a person who just like doesn't really have a full range of emotions. And, and, and that's my understanding of it. Like definitely psycho like a psychopath is somebody who doesn't feel a full range of emotions. And I believe that applies to sociopaths as well. And they just, they just seem like there's something off. But we know we know based on certain events that happen in the movie that this character he does feel a full range of emotions. He feels sadness and anger and happiness, and we and we notice that throughout the movie. So I wanted to make that point as well. Um, another point I wanted to make sure that we cleared up is because by the end, by the time we got to the end of the movie, I was pretty groggy, and I had been up for quite a while. And now I I want to try to explain a little bit better um my my take on the end credit scene so he's talking not the end credit scene excuse me the the scene where he kills murray on live tv and he's talking to the audience and he's comparing comedy to morality 
Okay. He's saying comedy is subjective. You people get to decide what's funny. And he points at himself and what's not funny. And he points at Murray. And then he said, it's just like how you people decide right and wrong. So he's comparing right there morality. He's, he's not, he is not the moral relativist. He may not be the moral relativist here. It's unclear to me at this point in time, whether or not he's a moral relativist. But he is definitely calling out society for being moral relativists. And he's saying that I could be the one dying in the street and you would walk right over me. You know, nobody's decent anymore. And, and he, is the, he is the outcome of that. Okay, so that's another, that's another, that's another look at this, at this final scene, this great, this, you know, not final scene in the movie. I keep calling it that, but you, I hope that the audience, you know what I'm saying, Ivan. I hope the audience can follow me because, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a fast. Yeah, one of, one of the climax. Yeah. One of the climax end scenes. Yeah. Is that big, the television studio part. That's yeah. a big shit right there. But yeah, yeah, consequence, consequence. He is the consequence of all these actions. So hence what happens with a consequence, you get what you deserve. So that's why all that connects right there. It's like, look, this, you guys kept believing this, acting this way, valuing this, 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 and belittling people like me. And like you were saying with the rage, yes, the rage is inside, but fear and cowardice keeps it in a victim thing where you hit yourself. Like, why am I so stupid? That's why he's banging his head. That's why he does stuff. Then he, exerts it a little bit to the trash the trash and then it gets to fuck it i'm gonna exert it on the people who have been doing suppressing me and that's when it goes physical to some others so see so it gradually elevates to harm yourself harm inanimate object now taking it out to the actual aggressors yeah the reason why i can't confirm that whether or not he's a moral relativist or not is because he kind of openly admits to being a nihilist in a roundabout way when he's talking to Murray in the green room. He said, I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in anything. I don't believe in those protests. I don't believe in anything. That's typical of a nihilist. You know, it's, I mean, that's, that's a very, um, that's a very shorthand version of the definition of nihilism is the belief in nothing. And so that's what he's admitting to. So he doesn't believe in right and wrong. So I guess it's, it's hard to confirm or deny whether his, what, what he understands about morality within uh, in the movie, but it's pretty easy to, to confirm how he sees society's uh, standpoint on morality. And he, he, he downright, he downright compares it to how comedy is subjective, which it is not. Everybody thinks everything is funny. You know, I might think something's wicked funny and Ivan might think it's just not, you know, and, but, and he compares that, uh, he compares that to morality, right and wrong. And the next breath, that's what he does. That could also be the writing in Hollywood where they're giving you truth, but you know how with truth, they got to throw in some kind of, you know, deception, some kind of red pill to, again, like, oh, I'm not sure what's going to be yeah, because that they got to confuse this truth there. But then that's the obfuscation. It's like, wait, now I don't know what the fuck, you know? Well, and then we can even bring it back to the Matrix again. What's his name? The Merovingian? Yeah. Okay, so in the Matrix, the Merovingian is the one, and we know this, it's been talked about a bunch of times, but the Merovingian is the one who who reveals a huge truth in the Matrix Reloaded, right? right. When he says, you never, you never understood the cause. And, and it's typical of Hollywood to, 
leak the truth out with the supposed bad guy or villain's voice. Yes. Okay. And that's what also we're kind of seeing in this movie as well, because we know the Joker is always the villain. Mm -hmm. The Joker is always the biggest, baddest villain in the DC universe for crying out loud. You know, he does some pretty nasty stuff. If you're a fan of the comics, you know what I'm talking about. The things that he does to, you know, Barbara Gordon, the things that he does to um, uh, Jason Todd and even like to Lois Lane and all these different characters within the DC universe. The Joker seems to just have no morals at all. You know, he, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, but we see this new style of, of depicting the Joker where he is, where he is like an agent of, he's like this, almost like this agent of karma at this point where he realizes that with the, with the file that he gets from the hospital about his mother, he sees all the newspaper clippings and speaking of newspaper clippings, a brief aside, newspaper clippings is used in this movie a lot. We see him on the street finding the, the front page where he's feeding into his narcissism he eventually, when he gets the phone call to go on Murray's show, you see that he's got pinups on the wall behind him of all the newspaper clippings that are stories about him. And so he's really, really, really like feeding into his ego really badly. He's got a very bad case of narcissism, clear cut. So that mixed in with something like dissociative identity disorder can be a very, very, very bad thing. And, and, I mean, what we're so back to the point of like how they use villains to kind of leak the truth out in these movies. The point is that Hollywood intentionally or not, and I believe it's intentional, but it's up to people to discern that for themselves and uh, to come to their own conclusion about that. But it's pretty clear to me that they are trying to paint people that recognize morality of the no objective morality and are and are willing to take the proper actions to defend themselves and to set things right they're trying to paint people with that kind of logic and understanding as psychopaths mm -hmm. yep 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 strangely enough there's a film i saw last night that kind of is along those lines but that's for another story <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All yep. right. So did we, you know, we did not sit down before recording this and go over some notes, be like, wait, we need to touch this. But I think we did it in a roundabout way. Touch. It was like three or four things here. And you know what? If we left anything out, you know, it's just a conversation starter for the people that listen to this. And I welcome anybody to reach out to me. You can do that at, from through my website on the contact page, freeyourmindne.com. And uh, you can reach out to me and we can further this discussion with the discoveries that you've made and your, your ideas about this. And, 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 you know, it'll be fun. So did I say in the recording something about, or was it us talking off the air about Joker was the one smoking with his left hand and that Arthur didn't. And at the end he did, because I watched the beginning again and I was wrong. 
in the very first scene with the guy, uh, counselor, that you see smoke rising, and you're like, "Oh, somebody's smoking!" And sure enough, he does have a cigarette in his left hand, and he's smoking. But then he's holding it with his right hand, and he does take a toke with his right hand. So I was like, "Okay, that blows that kind of theory out the water." So smoking is not that bad because either Arthur do it does it or the Joker does it. So that doesn't represent anything for me. If I had said it in the last recording, and if not, oh, maybe I'll edit this part out. Just kidding. <laughs> I think that the cigarettes are being used as a way to get you to start to pay attention to his hand movements so that he's doing stuff with his hands. And then I think that from there, that concept evolves into he lit, he puts the pencil down with the right hand and then picks it back up with his left. He switches mm -hmm. the gun around from hand to hand. And when it goes off, it's in his left hand. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, that you're supposed to recognize that this is a guy that uses his hands for things, you know, and like that, that's supposed to be like the thing I, I believe. Yeah. And so you know what? Wrong. You're not wrong to point out the cigarette thing. It's just, I think that yeah. it's not as significant toward that theory as, as I think that the significance in the theory that I have about the hand uh, thing is just that it's supposed to be the thing that gets your eyes on his hands right from the very beginning. Right. Okay. And then I had thrown out to you a theory of the stairs being the same from the exorcist and they are not, I did look it up and these stairs are filmed somewhere in the Bronx, uh, in the neighborhood near Yankee stadium. And the exorcist stairs were in Washington, DC in um, what's the, I forgot the name of this place, but it's in Washington, DC. So different place, but still the same, you know, interesting. We did discover doing a little bit of online research, theories out there by others about Arthur going up the steps, up the steps, up the steps. But the time he comes down to send is as Joker. So it's that thing of what well, we're, what did we find out? You said, uh, um, was it spiritual ascension or something? What, what was it? Or it seems that the stairs are, are supposed to depict how the, how, so if we keep in mind that every time we see him going up the stairs, he's in a very terrible mood and he's had a bad day and he's not really looking forward to what he's got going on when he finally gets home. You know, we kind of get that attitude from him that he's just downtrodden when he's, when he's finally reached those stairs and it's like the final climb before he's got to get home, right? Climbing, you know, the climb, the struggle, you know, and, that could be that that could be you know sort of a uh that could be symbolizing in a way the struggle of ascending like a spiritual ascension and then when we, we see him in full makeup dancing his way down the stairs that could be indicative of how easy it is to do the downward spiral thing to do the to do the descension where they that that's the that's the easy path you know, and it's funny that it, that we can break it down right hand, left hand, because the left hand path is that of Satanism. And with his left hand, he's embracing this kind of demonic entity within him, if you want to look at it in that sense. So, I mean, with the stairs, though, yeah, I think that I think that that's where the significance of the stairs comes in, you know. Is it, it? I think that's what it's supposed to kind of represent. Yeah. Okay. And maybe even even more crazy is yeah, ascension 
it's harder to get into heaven <laughs> dissension you know easier to get into hell but the thing is that he starts running down those steps when what authority is after him when government authority the police are chasing him so it's easy to you know run to hell when the government's on your ass <laughs> i'm just saying <laughs> yeah i guess <laughs> i don't know about that but i i mean it is it, it is an interesting idea to think about because you know these 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 types of movies are just to me it 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 just is a it's a clear indication of uh, of predictive programming you know these types of movies where the where there are where in in this day and age you can't you can't go you can't go anywhere without running into fucking five, 10 people that have some kind that are openly willing to admit about having some sort of mental disorder. Like, Oh, Oh, I have this weird thing. That's why I did that. That's the, the gist of, of many people where it's like, you go, huh, that's a weird quirk. And then they're like, Oh, well, you know, I'm autistic. And it's like, no, you're not. I know I'm not trying to make fun of people that actually have like autism or anything like that, but there's a lot of people that are running around this day and age who are made to believe that they have some sort of mental illness and maybe they do, but they're not really, they're not really conquering that they're playing into it and using some sort of victimhood badge as a, as a hall pass to get away with doing shitty things. And I don't approve of that. Uh, we, we could throw obfuscation in that area, too, because it obfuscates what's an actual mental disorder, but then things being accepted as normal, the normalization that I'm a woman in a man's body. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> but now the mental disorder, no, that's uh, and so this is no, I'm actually this. Oh, accept it. Accept it. See, so in that area, it's like you can't even address that because it's a hate speech or some shit. You're, you're the crazy one to question that. Whereas in other areas, you know, they can be like, oh, it's my ADD kicking in and this and that. It's like, what? So, yeah, it's, it becomes very obfuscated, this whole thing of what actual mental disorder is, you know? Sure. Sure. I mean, and rumor has it that in the DSM five, which I don't really, uh, I don't really um, try to encourage people to really take the DSM model very seriously, because when you start Mm -hmm. looking to how it's written, it's very like, it's very corrupt. So, but anyways, doesn't take away from the fact that in the DSM five, there is gender dysphoria is listed as a mental disorder. And that there was an activist group, and this is the rumor, that an activist group within the LGBT, specifically the T's, uh, the T community, that they were trying to get it removed. And then they found out that if they got it removed from the DSM, that their health coverage would be cut off because no, it would no longer be a medical issue for them. And they stopped their pushback on that and allowed it to remain in the DSM. So, I mean, it's like, okay, you're, okay then. So is it a, is it a mental thing? Is it a health condition? What is it? You know, like what what is it? So I I don't know. Frankly, frankly, I don't really care uh, what grownups do with them with themselves. I don't know if uh, I really agree with the unnatural kind of approach to the thing. But then again, like it's not me. I'm not the one. Be, I'm not being forced to do it. But they're trying to like kind of go after children, and that's what it really seems to be these days. Is that like they're they're kind of 
targeting their their target demographic seems to be those who aren't able to really consent to things and to know the long-term consequences of certain actions when it comes to changing their bodies forever mm-hmm. and those, we know those people as we know the demographic as children and i don't fucking approve of that at all so i mean it's a very tense topic these days but like um to bring it back to to joker is that like this movie is again it's being used as a calling card for all of these weird people out there these days who want to play the victimhood thing and get away with doing shitty things because they have a mental illness and that's why there's so many different um at least from a male perspective there's very very many uh depictions of there's signs of many different mental illnesses within this character and i think that it's done on that that way on purpose and uh yeah there we go (laughs) there we go and that's that i guess so and maybe maybe there's more to discover in the future and we can because there's going to be a sequel that comes out to to this movie coming up Mm -hmm. and it's going to be the joker and harley quinn and that and that part of the story and we'll see what happens um and uh and we can probably revisit it then or maybe if there's somebody out there that likes what they're hearing, or even if you don't like what you're hearing and you want to push back on something that Ivan and I have been talking about through this episode, I think I can speak to the both of us that we invite you and we can organize a, a healthy uh, debate, a friendly debate, and a, 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 another discussion about this. And we can bounce ideas off of each other because that's also a big part of like you know getting along in this space without authority telling us what to do is being able to have decent conversations. So, yeah, I guess if you say so, no, (laughs) speak for yourself. No, I'm I'm inviting you to Ivan's show. (laughs) What? No, that, that shit's going to happen on your show. No, (laughs) I don't fucking care. I know you don't. All right, then. So that was the bonus stuff. Whoever stuck around, I know care is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yep. So that's the bonus stuff, man. So I think we touched on what needed to be touched on. And now the wonderful work of editing begins for me. So I know why you guys like, oh, just air it live, do the live stream, and you're done with it. Like, yeah, but I like to polish my stuff up. Let's make it nice and pretty. In certain formats, it's it's important to edit it. You know, like yeah. we're just having like a, you know, conversation about philosophies and stuff like that. It It can be done without is if people come prepared it can be done without post you know uh what is it like what's it called i for, i don't even know what it's post production post production there it is i'm such a tool <laughs> <laughs> don't say tool tool you got me thinking of the band and you the one you like with all their the, the, that's another podcast with the conscious music and all these lyrics and blah 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 <laughs> oh, yeah man which you hinted to a little bit with joker too why certain songs are played in this movie Right. You know, and, and that is, uh, that that's important too, because it's supposed to stimulate, and then maybe we can include this in there too. The music in the movie is supposed to stimulate some sort of emotional or I, I believe an, an emotional or psychological response of, from the viewer. And that's why it's very important to point out that Gary glitter is being used as, as, uh, as music in the film after arthur found out about the abuse that he suffered from and i think that that's the key in in kind of 
discovering as the viewer that not only does it seem that on the surface we're being told that he was beaten, but he was also sexually abused because that's what Gary Glitter did to children alongside uh, being friends with Jimmy Savile. And then there's also the, the blue, like I mentioned about the painting with, uh, with uh, a cultural tie to Allen Ginsberg. So all of these things play a part, but the music itself is supposed to generate an emotional or, or psychological response from the viewer. So, or tap into the subconscious. Yeah. 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 That too, for sure. Yeah. All right. So before we get on another tangent here, that's it for the bonus. Again, thanks for watching. And um, yeah, I'll be back here in another week or two with another guest or two or three and start uh, getting back into this and putting these shows out. All right, James, anytime. Let's go ahead and uh, yeah, get back together and yes, do some great work. Talk about movies and music and movies and TV shows and everything else and the world. And the craziness, the insanity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Take care. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Take it easy.